Hey, everybody, if you have watched The Millennial Farmer, then you know I've got a pretty righteous Thunder Creek fuel trailer out here. Thunder Creek fuel trailers are built by farmers for American farmers. Right now, a lot of farmers are taking home fully loaded Thunder Creek trailers that are in stock near you with an average of only $1,300 down. Financing is, of course, subject to approval. You can check out thundercreek.com for product info, some stories from the field, and other great deals. That's thundercreek.com. Are you are you on a uh, do you have a heart any heart out like you got to go at a certain time you're done? Oh no, no. It's just Jason and I we're up at our cottage and this is what we do all night anyway, so we just drink. You're just going to drink anyway. at his water bowl. Does Jason want to be in the podcast? Nope. <laughs> no, not even a little. You have a cottage? I was yeah. just going to ask what's what's a cottage versus a versus a cabin versus okay, a house. Um so we're on a river in between two huge lakes in Northern Michigan. Um, so basically it's a river house. It's a two story river house. And I rent it out on VRBO um, because we're so busy in the summer. We can't really come up here every weekend. So we're just like not in that season of our life yet. Plus like the word retirement doesn't compute to farmers. So upper um, Minnesota, like UP. Um, well, we're, yeah, Northern Michigan. So like, so, okay. So, so take your yeah. left hand, Randy, and like, you know, make a palm so that you're looking at the back of it. Okay. Yeah. Michigan. Okay. Randy, you got to do it. Do it with me, man. Yeah, oh. Do it, Randy. Jeez. The thumb. You know, the look thumb at your is hand. the UP, right? No, That's the, the thumb. thumb is the thumb. It's not the UP. <laughs> oh. No. Okay. So we're right here. Like our cottage is up here. Like okay. up where the tip of your middle finger would be. Look at your hand, Randy. I'm looking right here. Oh, okay. <laughs> And the U, so the UP goes to like Mackinac, right? Or Mackinac? Mackinac, yes. Mackinac. <laughs> what is Mackinac then? Um, Mackinac is the French interpretation, um, but it's not the correct pronunciation. That's the uh, Americanese version. Uh, oh. We stayed, uh, Tina and I, my wife, we stayed on Mackinac Island. Oh, yeah. We're just about 25 minutes from there. We're just south oh, of there. Really? That's yeah. a cool... If you ever want to go somewhere, that that's pretty neat. Well, I was oh, just going to ask Christy, has anybody reserved this VRBO for like the second week in August next year? Um, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but we we have actually, you know what? Now come to think of it, I do have a week in August. There, August is Sunday to Sunday. So you would check in on a Sunday, you'd stay week and check out on the following Sunday. So um, I might actually, yeah. The second week, you had to give me dates, but yeah, I can share the link with you. You can just book it right straight through VRBO or, or we can do it direct. It's so freaking gorgeous up here. I mean, we've been up, we've been coming up here for a long time. And um, even our kids that are all teenagers now, I mean, we were up here for all the time when they were younger and now they're all like teenagers. We can finally afford a house that can fit everybody, you know, cause we're grownups now. And um well, it turns out they're like, yeah, we'd love to come up there, but you guys aren't going to be there, right? <laughs> Can we be our friends? <laughs> yeah, why would mom whoa, and dad whoa, be at the whoa, house whoa. that they bought for us? <laughs> exactly. It's their party oh. house. Well, they figured out when dad and I come up here, then they just have parties back at the farm. So, I mean, I guess it's a win-win for everybody, including the, you know, all the teenagers that call me Mama Christy. They don't really like to party at my house when I'm not there. Allegedly. <laughs> I, I think that's Becky's dream. 
<laughs> I've snowmobiled the the UP quite a bit. Okay. Um, yeah, five, we, six, we've, we're big times. snowmobilers. We we love this area, and we're literally we can pull the snowmobiles right out of our garage here and jump right on the trails. So okay, it's cool, beautiful. Well, so what kind of snowmobiles do you run? Well, Jason just let go of a uh, Articat Thundercat. Um, and that was a hard decision, but had a little bit too much ground power. It's a kill yourself machine, more or less. <laughs> yeah, those are the ones I like, but not when they uh, yeah, say yeah. cat on. Right up your alley, Zach. Actually, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a really reliable sled. It was it was so fast. It had all the bells and whistles. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, but we were also it's a very heavy sled, and I feel like we're kind of shifting in the direction of a little lighter sled, a little longer um, track, so that we can play in the powder and go off trail more. Our machines are geared for trail riding. I ride a Skidoo um, a Rev. It's you know it's a really nice little rig, and it's really comfortable, and it's fun for just you know tooling around here or just you know bar hopping with our friends around town. There's a lot of people that stay up here or or have places up here um, and come all through the winter. So it's really a fun little community to be a part of. So I've changed my mind. We don't want the VRBO in August. <laughs> oh yeah. Is it open the third week in January? It is. It is actually, I'm having new flooring put in like the week before. So you might be like our first, you know, renters or our first tenants. Oh, um, we might have to, we might have we'll to arrange, um, you know, arrange it so that we can come and guide. Right. We could guide. Yeah. You. Yeah. 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 Definitely. We're, we should keep in touch on that. I'm just, I'm just telling you. I'm but I'm bringing you. a Polaris. There is. Oh, I'll bring a cat. Don't worry. All right. Randy's in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I don't have any personal allegiance to that kind of stuff. I just it's like fine. to give people crap about it. You know, I'll, I'll ride all by myself about two miles ahead of you guys. That's <laughs> You're going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, so now we should introduce you. Do you want me to introduce you as Crop Scout Christy? Yeah. Crop Scout that's, Christy. That's my social media handle. And that's where, I mean, that's what people know me as. So you are on Instagram for sure. And what else? All the platforms. All of them? Yeah. Are you on TikTok? I am not on TikTok. Oh, me neither. Not on TikTok. Nope. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Facebook, um, Parlor, Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> you oh, you, she's on one that I haven't even heard I, of. I've got a Rumble account, but I I tried figuring it out. You at, created a Rumble account? Well, I took the name. Yeah, I, suppose, I got some followers. I suppose you have to take the name. Or somebody jumped I wasn't on there. Even thinking about that, yeah. you didn't get a Parlor account because I'm pretty sure Parlor's bigger than Rumble. I, well, um, let's be real. I have no interest in being on any more than I already am. Yeah, so. it, it really it, the overexposure is like ugh, you know. So I mean, we can just leave it at. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and LinkedIn. It's enough to maintain. It's just sure. those it nine is. or 12 platforms. It is. And it's so weird because I, I have I have a podcast that's sitting in, you know, the garage waiting for me to have time to like invest. I have like three interviews in the in the can already and I have no time to edit anything. I, I mean, it's just it's so crazy. And and hustling in the hemp world for the last couple of years has just like blew blew me up, you know, and so I do a lot of public speaking. Of course, all that's done, which is why I got January open. <laughs> so do, does, any, stuff. does anybody in the industry call you the hemp hustler? 
not the hemp hustler. There's a few people that are like very, they're like very, um, the, the cannabis industry as a whole is very like protective of their handles. And, um, and so I have a couple of like, um, hashtags that I use, like when I work with hops folks, like hops are crops. And so I try to connect it to, um, things that I can tie back to my crop scout, Christy identity and branding. So, um, yeah, so I kind of, you know, in, in the hemp world, I use the hashtag hemp and ain't easy and I have some shirts that say that <laughs> like stuff. That it is, it, it is, there is no truer like moniker for, for the hemp uh, gig because it is, it is not easy for sure. So, but yeah, so you can call me crop scout, Christy, um, you know, Christy Apple is my name and so we, we we should dive into that a little bit more and figure out because I don't even know for sure like what is it that you do and how did that how'd you get started in that? Oh man, it's it's are we gonna do that in the interview or is this the interview? This hey, is the, this we've is been the recording interview. the whole time. That's how we roll. <laughs> See, we don't even like our guests to know that we're already going. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. Awesome. awesome. All Nobody's right, gonna so- listen anyway. I'm glad I did the uh, the Jerry Seinfeld itch instead of pick, right? You don't want to don't want to do that live, but <laughs> they can't see you. Only we can see yeah, you. Yeah, the video is not going to go anywhere. I am not okay. technologically there yet for putting okay. videos out. Oh, well, I believe in you, Becky. Yeah, you, you've done some pretty incredible stuff here with with Zach's brand. Well, with your brand, we'll just so call it, what it is. to figure it all out. So. <laughs> Right, right. I only went live tonight on the internet and just let let people watch my eyes blink for five minutes because I was trying to figure out how to do this live, but I gave up. Audio okay. issues. I got the video to go live, but not the audio. I see. Okay. What a bummer. Well, I mean, that's part of technology, right? Yep. <sighs> Challenges. We do what we're good at. And technology is not something I'm very good at. Like any of the other things that aren't associated with agronomy and field scouting and tissue sampling and nutrient analysis. That's the world that like is, um, is my happy place. That's where I really, um, you know, geek out. That's where I got my start. So you went to school for agronomy, I take it? Actually, no. So that's just a crazy story. I didn't. I, you know, my family um, has farmed for many generations um, prior to me. Um, But my grandfather on my mother's side retired when I was a young girl, but they still lived on the farm. So we got to, we played in the stanchions. We got to hang out in the hog pens. I mean, we, me and my cousins raised all kind of hell on that farm um, and, and had a great time doing it. But my grandpa was always really keen to expose us to extension into like instill agricultural exposure to us, even though he was no longer farming. And my grandfather on my dad's side left his family farm when he was a young man um, to, to go a different route because he wanted to have a relationship with this family. And that was really difficult with the size family that that farm was trying to support in that time frame. So, you know, I, my dad was an engineer. My mom, you know, worked out of the home for most of my childhood. Um, but one thing that kind of led me back or got me to where I'm at was they always instilled this like challenge to educate myself. And, um, you know, I remember never forget like the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, that was a big deal. My dad 
got a Scientific American um, subscription that came to the house. We had the weekly science news, which is where I really got inspired about quantum physics, um, soil physics, and, um, you know, like biology. It was just, just crazy as a child, like those seeds were planted. And it was many, many years later into my life that those seeds were, were, um, you know, cultivated in a different way that sort of turned into this ag career for me. Um, I, I actually went to school for business and sales. Um, I'm, I'm not very shy. I've always been able to talk with people. In fact, my folks always chuckled and, and, you know, people that knew me as a child knew that I would try to sell, you know, anything to everybody and ketchup popsicles I, <laughs> to a woman in white gloves there you go there you go um, there's a lot of euphemisms there that are just like no longer politically correct to say so i'm just going to leave it at that uh, red popsicles to ladies in, in white gloves is perfect um, <laughs> but i love the thrill of the kill and that was just like so engaging to me but it was the psychology of it that really like inspired me the most and so there i went was going back into the science why do, what motivates people to say yes and and then understanding my product. And when I got exposed to the agricultural industry and the way to like thread those things together, um, what I realized was I really enjoyed teaching people about things and learning about what made their farm and their business work. And um, that helped me to be able to give them really good recommendations. I had, I had, really, really, really strong mentors. In fact, some of people in some circles might call them, you know, kind of jerks, honestly. Um, but they were really, uh, they were hard on me, but they were also pushing me along the way and cheering me on in their own way. And so I, I respect that tremendously about the people that, that poured into my life as I shifted from, you know, a sales role. I did, I was in marketing and advertising, selling marketing products to businesses and things. And I really love that. That was a blast. And I love the connection with the people. But when I was able to marry my like inner nerdiness with sales, all of a sudden, just like it, it was the career made for me. It was it was a, a lifestyle that was um, was just meant to be. And so I've been is I've been serving the ag community as an agronomist for almost 12 years now in central Michigan. And in the last couple of years, um, I've started to expand my footprint out beyond the people that I'm selling directly to and the farms I'm selling directly to and working for um, a crop nutrition company, TMAC Agro. Um, I worked for my husband's business for 10 plus years um, before him and his business partner sold. And that's really where I got my, uh, my foundation um, as an agronomist there. So, um, but yeah, it all kind of led me to, you know, to where we're at today. And that's, uh, you know, just really having a good time. And, and my focus isn't so much about educating the public, you know, Joe consumer so much about agriculture as I am passionate about working with farmers and helping them um, squeeze out soil health and, and hammer out and flesh out regenerative and cover cropping and restoring carbon um, and, and reducing their, uh, the negative impact on the environment, producing food that's nutritious. Um, and that's really, you know, it goes back to my, my interest as a child in soil physics and chemistry and biology. And, you know, who knew that it would, you know, eventually turn into what it is today, but I love it. I'm addicted to it. So are you most of the time working for yourself or are you working under, you mentioned TMAC Agro. Is, yeah. is that who you're working for most of the time or how, do, how does that work? 
Yeah, so actually I work for TMAC Agro full-time. Um, they purchased my husband's business and they asked us to stay on board and see to it um, that 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 retail location flourish. And it was what we were doing anyway. In fact, our name is still in the front of that building. And, um, you know, so we have a lot of pride in what we built there together. Um, my husband, Jason, along with his business partner, Chris Engel, um, who is no longer with us, God rest his soul. We actually, you know, built a really cool business. We had uh, an amazing sales staff. Chris's dad, Chris Sr. was a part of that sales team. And, um, you know, it, in our foundational team, and then we it's evolved into a really nice little business, um, independent ag retail, bringing, you know, customized solutions to farms locally and, and helping farmers succeed. So, you know, I work for TMAC full time and I have a, a different capacity within that company. I actually train and teach other agronomists now um, and, and take care of dealers who are selling our product out of their retail locations. We distribute um, crop nutrient and crop um, uh, nutrient stabilizers and crop nutrients in pretty much everything west of the or east of the Mississippi. Um, we have a presence in um, in Nebraska in um, Kansas and, and other points, but, you know, we're, we're in 27 states, um, basically. So what we're, what we're all about or what that company's goal and mission is to pro provide really good solutions for farmers and have that personal touch. And that's right in our, you know, wheelhouse as far as what we were doing in our business. And uh, knowing my skill set and, and my interest and, and passion for people, I really was able to tee off. And so now I mentor agronomists and I support our team and I help them bring product development and solutions to um, to the field for our team to be successful with. So as far as how much time I spend on Crop Scout Christie, well, I'm Crop Scout Christie 24-7. Um, so my phone rings, my DMs blow up. I'm responding to clients all the time and I am able to travel all throughout the Midwest to help support farmers with these specific crop needs. I work with um, hemp and hops farmers all over the Midwest. I have um, vineyard clients here um, all over the state of Michigan. We have a, a presence in Wisconsin. Um, my Crop Scout Christie business does. And what, what I'm specifically doing there is helping make um, nutrient recommendations, pest management, helping farmers be successful with a brand new crop. I mean, how long have we been farming industrial hemp? It's been a minute. And so now we're reinventing the wheel here. Um, so I jumped into that and took the bull by the horns. And that's really kind of, you know, sort of pushed me outside of um, out of the neighborhood and, and into new waters. Are they growing hemp and hops in Michigan? Absolutely. They yeah. are. I, For sure. I think maybe I'll be wrong here, but I think Michigan has a pretty similar like they're very similar to our climate and soil types in a lot of the area, which Minnesota can grow pretty good hemp and and hop and hemp's hops and hemp from what I understand too. But we don't Absolutely. have the market for it here is maybe the difference. So there's a market for it in, in Michigan. You're right, Becky, the market, I think, and, and, and I mean, this goes for specifically for hemp. I'll just address the market there first. So the market for hemp is, is really muddy and it's a long story about how did we get started with it and where did it go for the last 85 years and why? And all of the infrastructure that existed prior to 1937, where is all of that, right? So there's all these all these other questions that are associated with where did this industry come from? And, and it's really kind of a fascinating story. Um, there is a, There are some, some hops producers in Minnesota. Um, 
one of uh, one that's been in business for a long time, unfortunately, just recently shuttered their um, hops production. They still are selling inventory because the um, hops market has been you know, relatively saturated and it's it's dominated by the Pacific Northwest. It grows in Oregon. It grows in, you know, in, in Washington and they could do it in mass quantities because there's uh, very little disease pressure there and things that that we you know struggle with in climates like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, um, these climates that you know it, it puts challenges on our production system and we don't have a lot of tools to manage those certain things. So some of these varietals that are hardier and can handle the cold and can handle the the moisture that we get, you know, it's quite muggy here in Michigan and Wisconsin. I'm sure it is in in you know Minnesota as well. But you're right, Zach, we do have very similar growing conditions and climate. Uh, even our soil structures are basically glacial till, um, you know, the, the what's left from the last glacier recession from 15,000 years ago um, right. when, you know, the when global warming was a thing back then. Um, you know, that's uh, so you're that's saying global of- warming is a thing. No, I'm saying it was a thing back then. I know. <laughs> I remember those days. It was cold. Nice one, though. Nice one. I like that. You almost got me back then. Yeah, there, you know, there, it's funny because, you know, the hops market has become saturated. The brewery market, which is where our hops go, has gone through some, like, explosive growth, and then it tapers off. And, and right now, we're opening and closing about as many breweries, um, you know, at the same time. And so we're not seeing that growth, which is affecting the demand. We have more and more hop yards that are online growing, but we don't really have the the outlet to take all of that. And the industry is shifting a little bit into different ways that you can take hops. Um, and it takes, you know, three to four years before you're, you're actually producing something. So what's really cool in, you know, 2020 to plant for your hops may not be cool anymore as far as beer goes, beer consumption goes in three years when you're actually able to produce your first crop. So you have roughly $30,000 an acre tied up for that period of time um, before you can ever harvest that crop. So there's a ton of risk involved with, with hops production and, um, and the pest management side of it is, has been slow to evolve. And, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's a fun, fun production system to be a part of. I love working with hops producers. Um, they're one of my favorite clients because no matter what I'm doing or where we're going, we always have a beer in our hand. <laughs> so it's, it's not it's that different cool. from corn and soybean farmers then. <laughs> no, not terribly different. Not terribly How did different. you end up uh, with hops and hemp being kind of your specialty? Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, actually, we had about... Uh, Who's making noise? Missing. Somebody's making noise. Are you okay? Let's call them out. Somebody is making noise and I am about to call. Blink <laughs> twice if you need help. I'm getting the don't you dare. <laughs> no names? No, we'll just no, say no names mentioned. No names mentioned. He's a Minneapolis Moline collector though. We'll leave the rest to uh, we'll leave the rest to to mystery. He sounds like a good man. <laughs> I thought you might like that. Yeah, oh, there he was. He just had his camera cameo. <laughs> it was exciting. Yeah. So how did I get into hops? We had um, a couple of opportunities at our fruit and vegetable expo 
Michigan hosts the Great Lakes uh, Expo, and it is for all things horticulture. So tree fruit, all kinds of specialty crops. We always go as an exhibitor there. And I was interacting with the, the farmers on the floor, doing my Crop Scout Christie thing at the TMAC booth. And um, one of the farmers popped in and just said, hey, I'm looking for some help with this. I have this problem with calcium management. And I, you know, I said, listen, I don't have any experience with hops, but here's what I know about the way these types of plants manage calcium. I have an idea. Do you want to talk more? It opened the door. That farmer shared my name with another farmer with another farmer. And the next thing I know, I have this little, you know, this delightful cache of hops farmers that are really lacking in agronomic consultation. Very few people that do what I do want to tackle crops that are that challenging because, you know, no offense, but it's hard and it's not, you know, it's not a a 6,000 acre hops farmer. It's a four acre hops farm. It's a, you know, and I work with some really large hops growers um, in the Midwest and, you know, we work really hard to do this program and we tweak and we tissue sample and we scout and we flex our programs again and again and again. You can't sit down in January and make a plan and then just implement it and think it's going to go perfect. That's just insanity. So, you know, I I have a very engaged approach. I like to learn along with my clients. And so that's what really drew me into the hops industry. It also, my exposure in the hops industry actually gave me my start in cannabis as well. There's a hops producer that I was working with that was also growing cannabis um, out of sight of the state of Michigan at that time. And he said, hey, do you have any interest in learning about the system? What is your exposure and your experience? And so, you know, that started the ball rolling there. And there again, that there's a lot of people that can help a farmer with their corn and soybeans, with their alfalfa and their wheat and barley. There's very few, very few crop consultants or agronomists that are willing, interested and motivated to do something new and hard. And I guess I'm just that kind of crazy. I just, you know, wanted, I love the challenge. Um, I still work with corn and soybean farmers here in central Michigan. In fact, I was on the farm almost all day today um, doing year-end plans for our crop rotation and our soil amendments um, that, you know, we've had a beautiful fall and we can actually get it done now. So, you know, I still work with those guys, um, but I've taken on orchard agronomy and I work with several vineyards now too. So um, really, it's been really a, a fun journey to take on clients in that consultative role. There's a, there's situations where I can also place my TMAC product onto their farm. Um, but a lot of times it has to do with pest management and nutrient management recommendations and that kind of thing, which I love to do. And, and it's a great fit. How long have you been working with the hemp? Well, <clears throat> when did that start? So I'll, I'll call, I'll call my, my first exposure to cannabis cultivation, um, started out when I was very young. I grew up in a community that was sort of famous for their cannabis strain called pink hunting paralyzer. Um, kind of a fun little name. I never partook. I just was exposed to the production system at that time. And I so knew you, that you did not inhale. I did not inhale. Did <laughs> so not wait, inhale. so you started out so you started out in uh, okay, so when you're cuz people get this confused a lot, the terms marijuana, cannabis and hemp. Can we backtrack on that just a little yes. bit? Are they actually so, three different things? Uh, no, okay. cannabis okay. and marijuana. We'll call, I'll call the whole industry the cannabis industry. That's okay. the umbrella, okay? Okay. Yeah. okay. And so within that cannabis industry are these two little, you know, compartments. 
Um, one is the marijuana realm. And what distinguishes marijuana from industrial hemp, which is the other uh, universe, shall we say, is the amount of THC that's in it, which is one of the compounds that's in the plant material that um, quote unquote gets you high. Um, so there's all kinds of research that's associated with this in terms of medicinal purposes there, but the cannabis industry as a whole can mean all of those things. And so when I'm talking about industrial hemp, I refer to it as hemp. There's different parts of the industrial hemp world, which I think is really neat. Um, and which I think is, is one of the reasons that Zach and I even started having this conversation um, is to, to kind of explore these different parts of the hemp industry and what can the material be used for and that type of thing. So I grew up in a, in a community that um, was sort of locally famous for this pink hunting paralyzer, but cannabis throughout marijuana. <laughs> it was, yes, it was marijuana. Oh, they weren't um, that but, pink honey paralyzer wasn't known for its fiber. No, no, <laughs> not known for its fiber. If, you want to know what's really funny? I'm sorry. My, my, uh, I have a little sidebar here, but can you see my, my uh, cozy? It says pink hunting, the cheese capital of Michigan. Oh my gosh. That's, okay. the, that's the community I grew up in. We're the cheese capital of Michigan. We used to have a craft cheese plant. We were used to be very heavy dairy once upon a time. Um, but that, the, that part of our, our local history is long gone. But anyway, I just realized I was using my pink hunting uh, cozy because, you know, <laughs> home girl, shout out to pink hunting. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so getting back to the cannabis, right? So um, my exposure started at a different, you know, when I was young, but we were under the, you know, we, we obeyed the law. That was illegal. That was, that was a Schedule One controlled substance. And, um, you know, we, that wasn't something that I got into. And in fact, up until 2014, you know, it was still a Schedule One controlled substance, but some states had started adopting cultivation uh, legislation that made it legal to produce in that state. California, for example, was the first adopter. Shortly thereafter, Oregon and Washington. A few, you know, shortly after that was another group of states, Colorado and some others. And, and now we have, you know, just this past election, um, one of the things that did happen that we do know um, about the election um, was the adoption of a few more states opening their states up to um, cannabis cultivation, uh, recreational use, and uh, industrial hemp. So that's kind of interesting. You know, we're not back to the adoption that we had once upon a time. In fact, you know, industrial hemp has been cultivated, you know, back as far back as 8,000 BC, like indigenous people that walked the lands were utilizing industrial hemp minus the industrial, you know, right. pronoun there, right. but they were, they were using hemp for all kinds of things. In fact, I mean, this is hemp seeds actually provides like a fully complete protein and fat chain. So it's actually extremely nutrient dense and um, like bodybuilders and health, health folks. Um, I'm clearly not one of them <laughs> are, are big into using hemp hearts and hemp seed, um, uh, because it has such complete, um, fats and proteins that are good for brain development and, and total body health. So, I mean, this is stuff that people have known for a long, long time. There's documentation all throughout history of, um, 
cultures within Asia major and Asia minor and in Africa and all kinds of places that are utilizing hemp for a million different uses. And, um, you know, translated into what technology allows us to do today, it's kind of fascinating because absolutely everything that's made out of plastic, virtually every plastic you could put in front of me, uh, a Starbucks straw that's been, you know, deemed illegal in certain states, down to a solo cup, um, to a case that a CD would come in, those, you know, plastic cases, all of all of those materials can be made from a polymer extracted from a hemp plant. Um, so we, we can, uh, that's opening up a whole different can of worms, but, you know, the industrial hemp isn't just, it's you know, smokable cousin to marijuana. It has these other purposes and uses that is just absolutely mind blowing. And I had no, no clue where this, you know, what the potential here for this was until I started getting back into this. And that came through one of my hops clients. And that really like, you know, tore the lid off of this for me. And, um, you know, I had one of those like mind blowing experiences where I was like, look, there's nobody out here helping hemp farmers. So when, where did it go? My mind? No, the, the head. <laughs> the, mind, the mind was completely blown. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's gone. It's gone. Just, the government made it illegal, right? When, they they when banned and, it. They, when? Okay, so um, let's, uh, no, it's actually, it's actually before that. So I'll take you back to like, say the 1780s, right around the turn of the century to the 1790s, Okay, I know that's a little before your time, but bear with me. Um, so it was it was actually illegal in Virginia for you to not produce hemp on your farm. To not. To not produce hemp. Because hemp was utilized for so many things. Sheets, linens, rope, canvases, um, sails, um, you know, shipping, shipping rope that was braided. There is, they were using it in industrial purposes in that time frame, which were essential because so much of our industrialization that was taking place was relying on the waters, right? Things were coming off and on and off of our waterways. And so, you know, hemp was um, utilized. They had a process where they, they purified it and turned it into oil that you could burn. Um, they were using the interior of the, of the hemp plant, the herd, to um, create these shivs, it's called. And um, that's what they, they put in hemp lime, which is what they use for construction materials. So, I mean, really, really powerful. Every farm in America was growing hemp at that time frame. And all the way up through about the 30s, there started to you know, the, the era of prohibition, the alcohol prohibition, I think opened the door for other um, recreational use things at that time frame. And um, people turned to marijuana and, or were utilizing marijuana and tobacco in combination and that kind of thing to, um, you know, to numb the pain and, and of, of the de Great Depression that had just, you know, run through the world, literally, and uh, whatever. There's a lot of political Im implement implications here as to why it was eventually, you know, banned. But in 1937, they finally passed an act called the Marijuana Taxation Act. And in that- For that long? Yes, 1937, it was called the Marijuana Taxation Act. And what they did was they lumped industrial hemp right into the marijuana that was- 
you know, causing this mania is what they were calling, calling it at the time, um, because they couldn't distinguish it with their eye. So law enforcement wasn't able to distinguish between a hemp plant and a marijuana plant. And that's still true. They look identical, literally identical. And, um, you know, but the plants that are grown for fiber and for grain have a very different plant architecture. And in a lot of areas in Indiana, in Illinois, in Tennessee and Kentucky, you can still find ditch hemp grown in lots of different places, you know, and it's, it's just grown wild there since the thirties when it was, you know, put into the locker of prohibition. And then in 1970, it was officially put on the schedule as a schedule one controlled substance. And it fell into the same bucket as things like opium, cocaine, and the other known um, narcotics of that era, even though it was plant-based, even though it's not habit forming and the, you know, the uh, war on drugs began um, with that era of Reagan, like you're talking about Becky. And that's where people really got. That must be what I was thinking about as well. Yeah. Category the one. So how about, how about in other countries then has hemp industrial hemp been an ongoing thing there? I know. I mean, growing up, you always, like the hemp necklace that came from out of country then? Everybody likes saving money, including myself. And a great way to save money right now is by paying 0% interest, which means you're actually not paying any interest because it's 0% when you're financing your inputs for next season. That's a no-brainer. Over at FBN Direct, they've got the 0% Club, where if you spend $35,000 or more on inputs through their online store by March 31st, you'll get 0% financing through FBN Direct all season long. Of course, you have to be approved first, but that's standard stuff. And for our friends north of the border, up in Canada, you'll need to spend 50 grand in Canadian dollars in order to get the same deal. Don't forget, membership at FBN is now free, so there's nothing holding you back from saving money on what you need for the growing season. Along with the savings, make sure you check out their other financing offers, crop marketing intel, crop insurance, and health coverage. There's nothing else for farmers like FBN, so go ahead, check it all out at FBN.com. Yeah, absolutely. Canada's been cultivating it all along. There's countries all over the world that have been cultivating it all along and they never quit. So how, how have we struggled? It feels like we've struggled to get back into it. If it's been going on in other countries. Cause we don't have, have we... the infrastructure, right? I mean, I'm, there's nowhere to, if we were, cause when Zach and I looked into growing it, what was that three or four years ago now? Oh, it was least, five or six. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever shared that, but we looked really when seriously think, into yeah. doing like a pilot project of a few acres of hemp. And then 2014 Minnesota opted in the 2014 farm bill. So must have been spring of 14 or 15 then. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But there was no, well, for one, the person that we were, you know, discussing with, they just didn't seem knowledgeable enough and we weren't comfortable with it for multiple reasons, but. Everybody was jumping on the hype and there was a lot of, I think, uneducated people that wanted to just jump on it and, you know, make a million dollars an acre. And, and it, it, it rubbed us the wrong way on top of the bank didn't want us to touch it. Right. The bank said, if you touch a narcotic, we can't, we can't lend you anything. We can't work with you. And the local sheriff had to come out and make sure that what we were doing was okay. And he was not necessarily on board. He didn't right. want to deal with mm. what could didn't come know with what this was going on. Yeah. Cause the kids are going to see this and start walking around in the field. Right. I mean, yeah. nobody knew any different six years ago around here. So we shied away from it for those reasons. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it- 
and when that was first adopted back into, you know, okay, now this is a thing we can do. It, it really was crazy because it was still, it was still on that schedule one controlled substance list. Right. I mean, it was not descheduled until the 2018 farm bill. So, you know, you, the law enforcement component of this was a huge deterrent for a long, long time. But in the meantime, states that had adopted like Washington, Oregon, California, like I said, these early adopters, Colorado, um, really, really took it and ran with it, right? This is where a lot of the genetics that we can source today came from is the genetic vetting that took place in these other states. So these companies that have put the money and the time and the energy into the infrastructure, I mean, they had a huge amount of risk because nobody had heard of CBD at that time. You know, who, who's buying CBD? Who's, who's buying CBD? Who's buying hemp hearts, right? Um, a lot of that was being imported. A lot of the hemp that's utilized for textiles or like Patagonia, for example, Carhartt also has um, some hemp textiles. That's all being produced somewhere else. China grows it. China has the textile infrastructure to take it from a field plant to strip away the parts, segregate the parts, cottonize the material, turn it into a textile fabric so Patagonia can assemble it into something that they want, right? And the U.S. doesn't have that infrastructure. Um, we don't even have that infrastructure anymore with our cotton production. So, you know, a lot we used to produce the clothing we wore. Now we produce the cotton, but it goes somewhere else to get turned into something, right? Right. I've always found that funny. We produce the cotton, we send it overseas, they turn it into a you know, a dyed colored and stitched up t-shirt, then we bring it back over here. I know. It's It's wild. Odd. So what are the the markets right now? The the hemp you're you're uh, um scouting on, what is that going for right now? Well, so right now, hemp is, is, like I said, it's segregated into these three kind of like chunks. And right now, I mean, there's still a lot of CBD production, a lot of it's what's called cannabinoid production. And the cannabinoid is actually a chemical compound or compounds. There's many cannabinoids that are found within the plant. Um, and there's different plants that express different cannabinoids. Those are used for different things, tinctures, um, gummies, and, and dosing it for your wellness is the primary, you know, use of CBD, but there's others. There's CBG and CBN. Do you do more agronomy for marijuana or hemp? Or I, I work with a lot more hemp acreage, total okay. hemp acreage. The marijuana market is uh, much more valuable. Um, and those are much smaller scale production scenarios. Right. Nobody's farming marijuana on large scales at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to. Right. Um, And and there's, and there's a couple of things when we think about producing, whether you're producing cannabis, whether it's for THC, which is marijuana or, or a cannabinoid that is psychoactive in a different way, like CBD or CBN, you're growing it in a, in much more like a horticultural crop, right? Um, Much more like, growing tomatoes. And although we can produce a ridiculous amount of tomatoes on a very large field scale, I've seen us do it. Um, they're not pretty. And they, there's a lot of off spec material, um, that gets utilized for other things. And so, you know, translating that back into, into cannabis, um, and this goes back to Randy's question about what it's worth, right? So you have to have good tasting, good smelling, good active ingredients. And the only way to do that is on to control that environment as much as possible. When you're growing outdoors, you know, I mean, how much control do we have over the water? 
I mean, I mean, that's, that's, there's a great example, right? If we run out of water, I don't care what crop you're growing, you're kind of SOL, right? Yep. So, um, you know, so we try to control those factors. And so when you're dealing with an ultra high value crop like cannabis, it's, it behooves you to eliminate as many variables as possible. Now, if I'm growing for grain or fiber, that's a totally different ballgame. And the risk um, the risk assessment looks a lot different there because I have specialized equipment for weed management and for irrigation for my horticultural cannabis versus my grain or my fiber cannabis or my crossover grain and fiber cannabis, my industrial hemp that would be planted with a you know, no-till drill that can be harvested with, uh, you know, a, an air reel cutter bar style, you know, combine, right? So like that infrastructure already exists in, in, in systems. So there's a lot less risk associated with these others in terms of the production side. But what it's worth is only what somebody's willing to pay at the end of the day. And that, that volatility is, is virtually impossible to, to nail down. I, I can't call a co-op and say, what do you got on the board for beans delivered in January? That doesn't exist for cannabis, right? We have something called hemp benchmarks, which helps us to gauge what something like that is worth. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to demand. And I think that there's been some really, really creative um, business owners that are creating products for consumers um, that are driving that demand. The biggest problem we still have, though, is the same problem, Becky, that you and Zach had five or six years ago. We still do not have an established infrastructure to put insurance against this properly, to lend against this properly. Um, you know, I know Greenstone Farm Credit was trying to scrape together some things. I know a couple of the insurance companies were trying to scrape together some products, but they were just very limited and very Swiss cheesy. And that's really difficult to convince a farmer to dive in, right? So, um, you know, it, it, there's a bigger picture question that has to come into play is like, how much do you want to put into this? How much money can you afford to just like, you know, kiss goodbye kind of deal. And right. the answer is that's not, that's not somebody, there's not a lot of people that are willing to risk that. Right. So acreage has continued to kind of, you know, although we have more States online, actual production acres is really not growing. What does it take to grow uh, on a nutrient uh, side of things? So like the, how, do you, how do you fertilize it? Yeah. Like, like yeah. nitrogen and so if you're, if you're growing for cannabinoids, I really like to stay with, um, you know, a, a chlorine free, chlorine based fertilizer free program if possible. Um, I'm not saying you have to grow organic, but I do know that there is some tremendous quality and value that can be squeezed out of this particular plant when we're not interfering with its natural abilities. Um, and sometimes our chlorine based fertilizers can really damage that. So I like to take um, you know, composts and um, seaweed extracts, kelps, um, fish emulsions, um, you know, biologicals, and, and that's what that system looks like. And I think that really bodes well for that cannabinoid production. You can do it other ways, but if you're going to grow smokable flour, we're actually going to harvest flour off of that to like crush and roll into, um, into a, a hemp cigarette. That's, um, you know, that's, 
something I would recommend you be really careful about your fertilization. Um, and because those, those materials, don't I don't even have, know what a hemp cigarette is. You're not, you don't mean a hemp cigarette, right? You're talking about it's rolling like a, a joint, a doobie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about <laughs> Ham cigarette. You are so professional. Oh my god! Oh, I am boy. raised by a bunch of hippies, and my mom is gonna love listening to this podcast. And she's just like her mind's just gonna be blown. She's gonna be so informed and just you know whatever. But uh, I love normalizing this industry. Yeah, that is one thing that I absolutely love is to show people into like use terminology that people can like wrap their heads around because I know you guys were thinking it and I use that term on purpose to throw you for a loop because people are like- looking at oh, these guys like, do you, they know what's going on? I, what? I, I, I even saw Becky smile. As soon as you said it, I looked at Becky and she was like <laughs> looking down smiling. <laughs> I can't, I can't help myself. I I'm like, what? I love it, I love it. So yeah, so you know, you can, you can consume it that way. There's a lot of other ways to consume it. But a lot of times when somebody's growing it, um, you know, on a field scale, what they're doing is they're taking all the biomass off the plant, off of the stems. And how are they harvesting it? So there's a lot of different ways you could actually harvest that. And, and I think it's, I think it's worth, you know, completing this thought because what you're using the end material for is going to dictate what kind of equipment you need to harvest correctly. As I mentioned before, if we're growing smokable flour or we're going to, to, to do this like intensive, you know, kind of management system, you don't want to damage the flowers. The stuff that has the most valuable, the compounds that have the most value in that, that's going to make you the most money at the end of the day, need to be preserved on that floral material. It's, it's really beautiful. I'm going to, I'll share some pictures with you guys so you can see some of the, the fun stuff that I've, you know, adventures that I've had over the last few years in this world. But um, so if, if I'm going to be harvesting for smokable flour, I'm going to be doing, you know, as much or as little plant jostling as possible. I'm going to be doing whole plant harvest. I'm going to hang it to dry, or I'm going to gently run it through some type of mill to chop it into pieces so that I can extract the moisture out of it. You're, you're harvesting a plant that's like, you know, 65% moisture, 65 to 85% moisture. And so you, you have to go through a process of getting that moisture out of there so that you can do something with it in the next phase of processing, right? Whether it's converting it into oil or doing whatever you're going to do with it. Um, and there's a, a whole validation process that comes into the mix, right? So we got to make sure there isn't, um, you know, yeast and molds and, and, and biologicals on there that could potentially harm the human body if, take, if consumed. You know, there's a whole, there's, there's a lot of layers to this um, as far as this, the smokable flour and the tincture side of things. But the other world that exists for the grain and the fiber have when a completely you, wait, sorry, started. back up. When you talk yeah. about tincture, you're talking about an oil that has THC in it. Well, I mean, I guess it could be either way. You could have CBD. Like, yeah, right. there could be C. There could be a CBD tincture or a THC tincture. And, and there are both. There's materials out there that are combination as well. Yep. Um, so CBD so, oil comes from both hemp and marijuana. Yes. But only only the marijuana has enough of the THC to get you high. Correct. Yes. Correct. Okay. So by, by legal definition, um, industrial hemp has to have below 0.3% THC. I've seen on one of your posts where you're out there, you're, you're checking it to, to see how hot it is. Yeah. But, so you can actually let it grow too long 
and then yes. it's it's it it's, basically, <laughs> it's basically shitty marijuana marijuana like it won't yeah. ever it won't become good marijuana no like, you're you you there isn't enough thc in it to get you high but there's enough to make it illegal Okay. Um, so that happens yes. if the hemp grows too long. Yeah, but it's still bullshit because it's still not enough to make you high. That the whole so they that, should that just, is where the they should just raise that limit and misinformed. I the, have that, so many questions. That is so, and it's also what contributes to people being misinformed and thinking right. that it really does. Old people think that hemp is going to get the kids high right. because. No, it's not. Even if you let it grow too long, the kids can't be taking it from the field. So when you talk, high. when you talk ditch weed, is that hemp? When people talk, or no, can it actually I mean, be marijuana? Can, there can be ditch weed that is marijuana, okay. or there can be ditch weed that's hemp. It can be either situation. That's what they always talk shitty ditch weed. Yeah, it could have been hemp. It's yeah. probably it's probably native hemp that has gone hot. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. But even then, there's no possible way for it to still have enough THC in it to actually get a person high, right? I, you know, I, I don't know. There might be there might be some, uh, you know, bootleggers out there that would that would disagree with me. But I think it's pretty unlikely. You know, I, I mean, it, there's there's a couple of I had a, an interaction this summer with a, a gentleman who's a seed breeder. He breeds um, in Michigan here um, for marijuana strains as well as hemp strains, and he has a really unique business. And um, and he went chasing after bitchweed. He wanted to know what's the what is this produce and what is the value because native strains that have resisted disease and pests. I mean, right. there's tremendous value there. I mean, that's that's huge. And so you know, different different cultivars like to function in different climates, right? So if we have cultivars that love to grow in Kentucky in the, in the dampness and in the heat, you know, maybe they'll do okay in Michigan um, because we have so much moisture and humidity during the summer here. So, you know, like he went on a hunt basically and he harvested some seeds from different geographies all across the U S and he's got a nice little seed bank and he's in the process of growing them out right now. And it's really fun to watch him do this. And of course, all along, He's testing the THC con- content, um, what other cannabinoids are present there. And then there's another kind of like nuance to the cannabinoid production, and that's something called terpenes. And so different strains have different terpenes. Um, have you ever smelled an orange when you're not even, you can smell somebody uh, opening up an orange across the kitchen? You know, you, you don't see it, you're not doing it, but you can smell it. Yeah. Right. So the reason why you can smell it is because terpenes are being aerosoled out of that and into the air around you. And it and it causes you to to remember that that's an orange or recognize that's an orange. Right. So terpenes exist all around us and human cells and in plant cells all around us. And um, they have a really interesting function. So different terpene profiles can like actually a skunk have a- and marijuana have very similar terpene, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you can ask- yeah. Yeah, they do. (laughs) In fact, so that's so funny you said that because, you know, everybody, everybody makes the joke about, oh, that's skunky, you know, whatever smells like a skunk, blah, blah, blah. The, the, you know, the jokes abound, right? Yeah. But you're absolutely right that that is actually the same compound that's present there. How could it not be? I mean, it is, it is. It absolutely is. And I mean, even the craft beer industry, 
um, is very sensitive to terpenes, right? So if you are a brewer, you know, and this is your business and you're going hunting for hops that have these certain profiles, right? I'm looking for, um, and it's crazy, the terminology that's used in the hops world, um, but things like socks and cheese and, um, you know, these grungier like associations, skunkiness. Socks and cheese. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Skunky <laughs> cheese. Yes. <laughs> Right. But these are these are terms, terminologies. And, you know, when a when a hops producer produces their hops, what they do is a terpene profile on that batch. And that's basically their certificate of analysis that says this hops has these flavor profiles and this is what you should expect in the brewing process. And so, you know, the the craft marijuana, the craft cannabis industry is, is working just like that. All right. This is Oreo cookies and this is Girl Scout cookies and this one has these terpenes and this one has these terpenes that have this flavor profile yeah. and also blood brain effect, right? So there's there's some really there's some really cool stuff. We don't have enough time to get into all that today, but some really interesting things there that that's just fascinating, right? So yeah. we haven't even gotten to like Zach's question about you know, how do we do this? And Randy, what equipment do you use, right? So this is that's just the craft flower production. All of the rest of the, the hemp, you know, harvesting can be done with tools that we already have. I saw last year, we saw stripper heads. Um, Schellenborn makes a, a stripper head that they're using. And she it basically, just, it just kind of like sucks all of the, you know, it uses these rubber. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> you got me again. You, you, can interrupt you can't say stripper and sucks in the same paragraph. <laughs> uh, so it's a good thing I didn't uh, use my old smoke a telephone poles worth of CBD and you still wouldn't get high, right? I, I, that, that's, I'll say that one for another day. Yeah, that the the, the different equipment they're using is pretty amazing. And Oxbow has stepped up their game. You know, they, they have produced these harvesters for like blueberries and coffee berries. Oxbow is big into the uh, um, sweet corn, peas, Yes. All of that, all of that specialty crop thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So these guys are already used to like going at a million dollar machine with a plasma cutter and just torching stuff off and tacking things back on until they find out what works. And they've done a really, really great job of that. Um, I've seen some really interesting modifications. Actually, just yesterday, I was able to, um, one of my friends in the hemp industry sent me a video of an Oxbow machine that had been modified. To me, it looked like a, a modified sweet corn picker and it had these kind of curtains that the plants would go into and it would kind of suck off all of the the leaf material um you know just kind of gently pull it off of the the plant the stem because the stems can be used for something totally different so are they so, the same harvester yeah. actually pulling the uh, I don't know how this works the flower off and then keeping the stem separate and capturing the dust because I think the dust is worth something too isn't it uh, well, you don't usually have a lot of dust until it's dried. So uh, okay. once the material goes through the drying process, then you start to get these fines. And, um, and a lot of guys are actually implementing like a hammer mill style um, of mill to break down the biomass material into finer material so that it can be extracted easier, whether they're turning it into 
um, distillate or crude oil is, is the next phase, or if they're going to take it to a powder and remove all of the THC out of it. Like there's a lot of different steps that are involved in, in making all of that happen. So, um, I've seen, uh, I saw somebody out there on a small scale, they had modified like a, Ooh, what's it called? Like a little steel has those a reciprocating saw that's on like a telescoping pole. Oh and, yeah. 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 Like, and like so a, they, a little chainsaw, like a hedge, uh, hedge yeah. trimmer. Like, oh yeah. Hedge trimmer. Basically sure. a chainsaw instead, instead they modified it so that they're holding it down. Like you would like a, um, a corn knife and just like swinging it and cutting these whole plants down. And then they had guys coming behind, throwing them onto a, a wagon and taking them up to the shed for drying. I mean, it was, it was incredible to see, you know, the different ways that people were, you know, working with what they had, you know, and that was a farmer in, um, in Hudson Valley in New York um, that I worked with in 2019. It was just, just a really, really neat experience to, to see how innovative these guys were. Um, just very, very cool. Uh, situation out there. But again, that was all for cannabinoid production. Like this year, the 2020 growing season is where we saw this really cool little pop of, you know, blossoming of grain and fiber producers. People are really interested in this other side of things and, and where the material can go and experimental amounts of material are needed for companies that do want to do research and development on the plastic extractions, right? Like you've got to have the plant material in order to do the R and D. So somebody has got to grow it. And we saw a little bit of that in 2019. This year, we saw a little bit more of that in different geographies. And, you know, here in Michigan, where we our proximity to the automaker industry, um, it really puts our growers at, a, at an advantage to do something that can be used for the R&D. So we had a lot of small scale farmers do a nice job of producing research and development quantity of materials. Um, and those get, got plugged into those, you know, into those channels, but that's still, I mean, it's still the infrastructure. I just keep coming back to that. That supply chain needs help and needs, um, you know, funding and needs the mainstream media to get behind it. And um, I don't know what we have to do to tear the lid off of this and help people understand how, how good this could be for their soils. Well, it's going to um, take, it's going to take politicians to stop taking money, money from big oil. Right. I mean, that's, Oh that's yeah. It. That's yeah. It. big oil right now puts way that too much happens. money. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> hold on fellas. We're going to solve the world's problems right yeah, now. No. Yeah. <laughs> I've had too many beers. I can't do it. I have to stop. So myself when, off. go ahead, go, go on now. Well, I was gonna say, so you, you talked, you have to dry it down. Is there is there an industrial way of drying it down yet, or are we still just yeah, hanging it in there drying it? No, you hang it from the rafters in your uncle's barn. Or or yeah, I get that part. <laughs> is there is there an industrial way of doing it yet, or is it still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that part has been automated, and um, you, you know it it, somehow. Be, yeah, because because hemp is being produced in China on a large scale. Um, China has done a lot of the legwork on these drying systems and they basically look like a shipping container with four or five different belts inside and a slow conveyor that just kind of runs it back and forth um, at, a, at a low temperature, low and slow, um, just to extract the moisture without uh, oxidizing the leaves. You know, we don't want to burn the leaves um, that then we don't have usable product on the other side of that of that output. So, um, yeah, that was that that part, I think, is I'm not going to say is is solved necessarily because I've seen this year 
compared to last year in terms of drying is so much more efficient, right? Because people bought those those machines, they literally came in a shipping container and they just put it together and hope for the best. And then they went a season with it, modified it how it needed to be to suit their needs. And now they have a really well-functioning setup. Um, There's a couple of companies here in the US that have done a really good job of marketing the materials. There's a couple of large um, like cylindrical tumble dryers um, that they like dried sun-dried tomatoes and dried fruits and things like that in and uh, or cranberries and cherries that's what they use those things for and a few people are utilizing that type of a drying system it's very efficient it's very fast um, but it's a ridiculous amount of overhead um, as far as entry to market it's it's a very 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 expensive piece of equipment for a very risky and very small return on investment still so i don't see that you know going big at this stage of the game, there are still people that are hang drying it, Randy. I mean, that's, that's still a thing, you know, hang drying it and doing a, another step of the process called bucking with a B and uh, what they're doing. Is you cleared that up. I, I was like, Whoa, Oh, I got it. Why would you tap that way? Why did she, why would she think we would point that out? Such language. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they, they buck the, the plant material off of the stem. So if a, a plant has been hang dried um, to a certain amount of, of moisture, then what they do is they take a tool um, or an automated um, machine that will actually, they put it into the machine and it pulls all the dry material off the plant. And then they can use that material for whatever it is that they're going to do next. So, um, but yeah, so on the, on the hemp and the, the grain and fiber side of hemp, you know, we can harvest that very differently. The fiber can be cut. You know, I've seen people use like a, a sickle bar, a sickle mower to cut them down. They lay them in the field and let them ret in the field. That's the term for letting them field dry um, down to a certain moisture. And then they come and pick them up with some type of an accumulation tool and then separate the outside of the plant, the bast from the herd. And those things then are used for, for all these other, you know, polymer extraction, textiles, um, lime, hemp lime, which is a construction material that resists, you know, moisture and molds and, and fire and all kinds of awesome things. There's just so much opportunity there that I, it's just mind blowing that we aren't farther along right now, honestly. But so we're, we're talking about all the different ways to harvest hemp and all the different opportunities for the products that it produces and all these different obstacles that go into. How are you going to harvest it? We talk about people getting creative with harvesting and with drying and, and with the final production of it and jumping over all these hurdles to get it produced. Do you see a time when this will ever be a viable third crop option for in a, 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 I hate to use the word normal, but for, for a normal farmer, can, is this going to be, you know what I mean? Like, will this be, Will this be the third crop option for the United States? We have corn soybeans right now up here in the corn belt. Is hemp going to be another one that could come in the way like wheat or alfalfa is in there? Is this, is this a, a, a legit option for somebody that says, you know what, I think we're going to just, uh, let's do 200 more acres of hemp this year. That's a big question, Zach. I do believe that we will get to that point. If there, you don't, if you don't want to rattle on about a, a super good answer, you can just make a dick joke. 
Okay. <laughs> I almost thought like she had one waiting okay. there. Like she had one written okay, down. She says. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission on that one. I'm going to, I'm going to pass for now on, on the dick jokes, but I will say, I think that there is opportunities there. I think that the, the, the co-op, idea or concept needs to is going to be an essential part of that um, somewhere where we can take our hemp grain to once we harvest it um, because we have to keep it segregated you know I mean think of the questions that it would cause you to have as a farmer you'd need a dedicated bin you need a dedicated wet bin probably right I mean you, you, the not just bin space but the contamination from other crops, we can't, we can't have that. This isn't being crushed and turned into feed and, and chapsticks, you know, like our soybeans or crayons. We're, we're putting this into the human food chain. And so it's, it's very different, you know, the way that we have to handle this, but I think there's but is some it any neat- different, is it any different than wheat? I mean, pe- plenty of people farm corn, soybeans, and wheat. Do they have a separate, do you have a separate wet bin for your, well, you, you keep your crops separate, so you sort of do. And, and uh, I mean, I don't, but, if but you, you haul in your wheat, you can have a couple percent of corn or soybeans in it. And yeah, you'll just exactly. get your normal and I dock, think she's saying you wouldn't do that with that this. Is. Why couldn't you? Why? You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want other crops contaminating your wheat. So we have like tolerances for you can have a certain amount of FM in your corn or your beans or whatever, yep. you know. But on the, on the industrial hemp side, depending on where it's going, there might be some really strict rules about how much FM you can't have, right? And so that that presents some different things. We had some grain farmers here in right in central Michigan this year that I worked with. Um, they grew about a thousand acres of grain for um, hemp seed. They want they were growing the seeds to create hemp parts, and is actually going to a company that mills them down and puts them into uh, um, protein shakes. And so, like the FM tolerance was like zero. You know, so that is that just because I okay. So, my first question is, is why would the hemp market allow less FM? I mean, uh, that for me, they're demanding less, but but, okay. So, are they demanding less because hemp is right now viewed as like a it's it's viewed as like a natural option, like similar to uh, non GMOs or organic. It's, it's, it's a mislabeling issue really in my eyes is what I'm thinking. Like why is hemp like, why, why do they have higher, why would they have such higher standards than the soy, soy, soy brands would. Why is it different than a commodity? Yeah. And, and I get it. I'm in my, in my brain, I'm thinking, well, because it's a branding thing right now, they're branding themselves as the natural, healthier, but it's just a, it's just a labeling branding thing. It's not actually having soy in your hemp. Isn't going to hurt you unless it's an allergen, you know, or like why, so, I mean, as in my opinion, I, I don't disagree with you, Becky, but in my opinion, I think I think that part of it, the tolerances are very low because right now the hemp industry is under so much scrutiny um, in, in the research and development phase. And so right now we do not have an infrastructure that is geared to take FM. We do for soybeans. The hog feed that we're producing with the soybean meal, yep. you can have FM in there. It doesn't matter. The pigs don't care. 
right? But right now, because all of the research and development on, you know, they're doing studies on Holstein cows to see if there's a psychoactive effect for cows when they receive hemp into their feed supplement or feed rations, as well as beef and all these other things, right? The, the rules are so intensive right now on the hemp industry as we, it's, it's tighter on the feed side of things than what it even is on the human consumption sure. side of things. It's not even, it's not a, a, you know, a marketing gimmick that we see in some of these other realms yep. um, because, because we're affluent enough in the U S to, to have these choices. Yep. It helps us feel, you know, good about ourselves to, you know, buy organic this or organic that. I, I mean, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. What I am saying is the industry is under so much scrutiny as we develop the industry that FM is not tolerable right now. Right. It's just not. It's going to mess up the testing or whatever. Potentially, potentially. And the last thing you want to do is waste another growing season of a beef cow to be able to, um, you know, say, oh, this is or isn't going to do something that we thought it was going to do. So you, you just have to go with it. And, right. um, you know, we don't want to come back four years from now and say, oh, well, that was potentially, you know, damaged because it had whatever. Right. So right. so the, the scrutiny level is just so much more right now because we are literally reinventing an industry. You know, that's that's something that soybeans are established. Corn is established. And mm-hmm. as a corn and soybean grower, we're used to that. We have norms. We know what to expect and we know what we can get away with. But unfortunately, right now, because this industry is so brand new, the tolerances are just very, very tight. Very, very tight. And I, would, I don't know if that's going to change. I mean, it might want to be one of those things. assume they would get there. I mean, it's no different than, than... Probably in like 100 years because that's how efficient our <laughs> yeah. government is. I but like know. our, you know, wheat going in, you know, you, you know that's gone for a, for a food-based you know, and they, they, so if there's any FM in there, it's re-cleaned, it's re, uh, re refined down to a pure seed, you right. know, before it goes right. in. And I would assume hemp would kind of be the same way once they get there. Right. One of the other, one of the other concerns that comes into play with this FM conversation is actually residues. Okay. So there are very, very, very few pesticides that are labeled for hemp production. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so we don't, we can't have residues of, you know, pesticides at all. There's a zero tolerance policy on these. And so that's another component of this that makes it really, you know, important for us to be able to segregate things and not, you know, not put our hemp seed into a bin that we just wrote, ran our, you know, cruiser treated soybeans through, right? Or our apron treated soybeans, because, you know, you can pick up some of that residual on there and that could go systemic in that plant and could cause problems right so these are the these are some of the the challenges that this industry is facing as it launches into you know why can't we just get this infrastructure built well we have to know what we don't know and then we have to know what we do know and then we have to pull it all together in a big bucket and then sort out the next level of things that we do and don't know so it's 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 at that stage for us you know i mean we're getting there and it's it's fun, but it seems that when when China's China's going at it hard and and Canada's been growing it forever, they know. Well, China just you comes think we here just, and buys we, our companies out to steal our technology and our ways. Why can't why why can't the U.S. just do the same damn thing? Buy one of their damn companies, steal their technology, reinvent it, and do it because that's what they do, right? We just had the conversation about the pork industry. Yep. I want a very unpolitically correct answer to that, but I won't. 
<laughs> okay. But that's, I mean, I don't know. But because but because we're the U.S. and red we tape do the things that we yeah. do. Some countries have red tape and others don't. It's going to take us 200 years versus the five years. It's going to take China to do it or, you know. And if they've already been doing it. Right. They've already they're, they're already there. Right. But someday we'll do it better. Yeah. It's a long time from now. <laughs> Yeah, and right, and right now, you know, we we own the, the genetics for the hemp that's grown in the U.S. is U.S. owned, and it needs to stay that way. Is, I, I that, mean, stay that, way. is that an issue that that the genetics could go somewhere else? I mean, is that a concern? It's not a concern for the hemp industry. It's just a concern for Chrissy Apple because our entire ag industry is basically, you know, in whole or part owned by foreign countries and companies right yeah you know i mean super scary i'm just i for me one of the things that inspires it it, it is that's ignored and one of the things that inspires me the most about hemp our our declaration of independence was written on hemp paper and if that doesn't inspire if that doesn't inspire you i don't i then we can't be friends i'm sorry and and so for me i feel like this is the people's plant we the people and this is an opportunity for us to bring a crop into our rotation and and use american ingenuity and utilize the resources that we have here in our great nation and utilize this crop to help restore our independence we were once a free country we're not a free country right now and it's because of you know the I'm all for world trade. I mean, we live and operate in an industry that lives and dies by, you know, the, the commodities that are exchanged on the world market now. And, and, and I understand that I'm not a fool and to think that that's going to somehow just evaporate or go away someday. But I do believe that things that we can do to be independent, there is a hunger here in the U S for textile makers to create hemp fiber, but we have to be willing to pay more than $7 for a t-shirt. Yeah. Crop Scout okay. Christy just yeah. gave me the freedom chills. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> like maybe <laughs> stop buying your T-shirts at Walmart or Target or I don't hey, know. Those are amazing American companies. They are. And yeah. But I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying I, that's what gets me fired up about people, this industry. People scream the word shop local, shop local, shop local. But I don't really think they understand what that exactly means. Like, yeah, shopping local and buying something that was made in China doesn't necessarily mean mean shopping local. Like, you really got to do your research. I mean, it There's does, a lot more but to it than that. The, yeah, it goes so much deeper than that. Like, the problem is so much bigger than shopping local. Like, it is. It is. Oh. If we jump back to genetics on the hemp, is there any sort of firewall or protection against, and I'm not saying there should or shouldn't be, but against right now, our genetics leaving the country as far as ownership and or genetics coming into the country, say some of the cultivars that they're growing in China and having success with. Is there anything stopping us from pulling those cultivars here and experimenting with those? 
No, I, no, Zach, I think, I think that's a, an open and free market right now. I know that some, there's a lot of marijuana strains that have come from Eastern Europe, um, you know, and, and hemp strains that have come from places like Turkey and Armenia and um, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan and, and those countries, they've been producing hemp all along. And so we've utilized their, their, you know, research and development to bring things here to the U.S., um, which is which is kind of neat, right? There's still a lot of red tape as far as international trade, and it has to go, you know, it goes country by country on a lot of that stuff. But, you know, I know that there's genetics from Poland and from Hungary that were produced here in the U.S. and, you know, made beautiful hemp and, you know, really predictable stands. You know, we were making a full stand count in my opinion, a full stand count should be 95% plus. Um, but some of this other stuff that came from domestically produced people that don't, that don't know what they're doing, you know, we're getting like 25 and 35% stand and that's unacceptable. That is, that's not a business. Um, that's, that's a, that's racketeering <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so, you know, as an agronomist and staying true to my agronomy, I'm looking at, are we producing a crop that is consistent are we producing a crop that is, you know, has the agronomic features that are predictable that we can make a plan around and that kind of thing. And as far as what's, what the firewall is, I don't know what that is. I don't think our government has even wrapped their heads around that other than to say, um, well, it's kind of like marijuana. So I don't think we can bring it in here. You know, like I, I had a friend who was trying to bring some tissue culture here because they wouldn't allow him to bring seeds. So he was trying to bring plant cuttings and grow from those plant cut cuttings and grow out a plant and harvest the seed and, you know, and, and start the genetic um, phenol hunting that he could do here in the U S and they wouldn't allow it. And he, you know, it was, he ended up staying like an extra couple of weeks in Europe trying to, you know, get through all of the red tape. And at the end of the day, they just don't know how to regulate it yet. And I think fundamentally, I mean, the lowest common denominator for our industry of why can't we get there with this food chain? Why can't we get there with the supply chain? Why can't we get there with the, you know, consumer demand is the fact that we have, you know, the USDA, the FDA, and the DEA all want their hands in the cookie jar, but nobody wants to, to take the wheel yeah. and, and dragging their feet and the bureaucracy associated with that is kind of, you know, really damaged our ability for farmers to make money. We have farmers that still haven't sold their crop from 2019, you know, and, and, and it's because the state that they grow in, or, you know, there, there's just, there's too much red tape. And the market's saturated and there is some really big capital, you know, venture capital people in the mix when this all started and said, oh, we're going to put in this $30 million plant here and we're going to put in a, this here and that there. These guys grew for them. And then they're like, well, yeah, we cashed our, out our money and now we're on to the next thing and sorry about it. You know, I mean, seriously hurt some major, major people and um, a lot of producers. And it's, and it's just terrible that that's even happening, you know, um, but at the end of the day, you know, you look at your, your system. I don't think you guys are CBD producers. I think you guys down the road eventually will be phenomenal grain producers. You know, we produce a lot of hemp grain out of the Dakotas, Manitoba and Saskatchewan um, across the border, you know, points North Montana. It, it, it does a nice, it does a nice job there that those cultivars like that climate. They like that, that parallel. Um, you know, it's, it's probably going to be hemp was grown on this land, right? Well, 
Well, I don't know about specifically on this land. I don't remember discussing that, but I know Minnesota, we've talked about that for sure. Maybe we discussed that. I just don't remember it, but Minnesota was a huge producer. If I, I don't want to be quoted on this, but was Minnesota the number one hemp producer at one point, hundred years ago? Um, Minnesota was top of the charts for a long time. And then also, um, in the Virginias hemp rivaled tobacco. Really? Mm -hmm. That's, that's funny because they did like to me, when I think of the Virginias in that area compared to Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, those don't seem like climatically. Is that a word that they would be the same at all? We're going to make it a word climatically. I like that word. Actually, so so the crazy thing is different cultivars exist. Randy, Randy had a vagina joke. <laughs> Let's not move on until he had it. Okay. All right. Do you need your moment, Randy? Let's it's, go. It's past. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> you gotta hit it when the, you gotta hit it when it strikes, right? You gotta, you gotta hit it. Well, he he looked at me in that way and I knew <laughs> we just have this if we give each other the look. Like it's <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's actually cultivars that grow in all kinds of different climates and there's some that prefer um, more arid climates there's some that prefer more tropical climates and um, so there's there's a lot of nuance there and knowing what you're growing and where you're growing it is really important and I think a lot of farms have struggled trying to grow these you know tropical preference varieties in different areas they probably shouldn't Um, but uh, it's a very resilient plant and you would you would you would fertilize and feed these plants differently your um water consumption is pretty tremendous these plants take a lot of water and so you know areas like it surprises me areas like the dakotas that don't get a lot of rain can really produce really nice hemp i mean it but it's because of the root system the the root structure and root architecture of these plants is absolutely astounding and so they can access water in deeper and farther away than our corn plants could ever even imagine. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating how resilient these plants are. How long will it be before Monsanto or who is it now? Bayer will be genetically modifying their corn to use traits from hemp, uh, to, you know, do things like access the water that's deeper in the root system. Like, is that a possibility? Like, it's like, not, it's not coming from hemp, but they're already doing it. They're already shoving the roots deeper for drought tolerant. So, so it's not coming. Well, I guess I can't say, I don't know where it's coming from. Maybe Randy or Christy know, but I don't know where the traits come from, but that is a big I mean, you're like probably artesian like, yeah, hybrids or the drought, drought tolerant, tolerant hybrids. Yeah, I don't know where it's coming they from. They probably wouldn't tell us, right? Maybe. I don't know. So don't that know. isn't, that isn't a genetically modified trait. Uh, GMO technically is a trait that's not neg- native to that genome. So the drought tolerance traded corn isn't actually a trait specifically. It's so more of a it's, hybridization thing. It's it's the plant's stress response, and that is the, that is a native language that the plants all speak. Okay, so the way that they respond to certain types of stressors, what they've done is they've either turned the switch on and made it permanently stay on or turn the switch off and made it 
permanently stay off using the CRISPR technologies. Um, I, we actually, several years ago, um, when we when we owned our ag retail, we were working with a, a seed breeder company. And what they were working on was exposing the corn to the, the most intensive, you know, adverse conditions you could possibly imagine to elicit this intense stress response to figure out what genes were engaged in that what plant functions hormones enzymes what was what was physiologically taking place in the plant and can we reproduce that is that native and the answer is it absolutely is native Holy and so crap. they're not you just blew my mind because i didn't even know that that was a like I didn't like, so I've read quite a bit on hybrids and GMOs, but when you're talking that, I I didn't know that was a thing. She's yes. like an agronomic Bill Nye. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. So they go, it's like, uh, what what is it called within a human? Like your your flight or what is it? Fight your, or flight. Your fight or flight response. So sink so, or swim. So plants have a very similar type of thing within them, it sounds like. And so genetically, they go in and they figure out what that is. And then they figure out how to just make that stay on all the time. Yeah. They make it fight. That's weird. I, I, yep. So that's the, that's the difference between like offensive and defensive traits. You know, I'll just use corn as an example. So when you're looking at a corn book for, you know, to make your corn seed selections for the upcoming season, you're going to look at what stresses have we had that we know to expect and why, right? Because it's, it's only the stresses. Every single kernel of corn comes out of that bag ready to produce 900 bushel corn, right? Um, it, it's the, it's the environmental stressors that that, kernel goes through that start to chink away at your total yield potential. And you just so, spoke Randy's love language. He talks about that all the time. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> we actually, we actually have a multi-hybrid planner. So we play with uh, the offense and defense and yeah. Sweet. So there you go. That's what I'm saying. So that's part of that. So that those, those, you know, hybrids that are being sold as, you know, water stress or water, whatever you want to call them. Basically, that technology isn't foreign technology. That's native plant pathology kicking in and saying we're responding to a stress. We have a, a water stress event, which affects how it moves water through the xylem foam. It affects how it elongates cells. It affects the, you know, everything in that plant. The glue that holds those cells together gets affected by you know, these types of stressors. So they've figured out, you know, certain things. And actually they've done a lot of, of um, you know, plant breeding when they find that, then they really go hard and heavy into plant breeding to make sure they can reproduce it at a commercial scale, you know? So, so the artesian corn that you're purchasing today or the, whatever you duro, what a, I can't remember all the names of them. I, I'm not very good at that part of, of my, uh, my agronomy world. Maybe I should be a better seedsman, but I don't love seed. I just love plants. Um, I don't like selling seed, but I do love plants. But anyway, um, yeah, it's part of its native, you know, stress response language, just like you and me. There's a reason why we, you know, sweat when we're hot and exerting, you know, energy because we're burning calories and that is part of the natural process, right? So the plants are going to go through these natural processes anyway, and they figured out how to do this. And with other things too, other pest, uh, other pest pressures as well, um, utilizing native traits. This is 
like super fascinating. Yeah, I'm just listening. I, I, I don't need, I didn't have another question prepared. <laughs> I was just listening. I, I'm still back on the whole how, okay. How do they, okay. When you're talking about the whole flight or flight thing with the plants and, and turning something on, how, how, what is the process? Okay, so I understand the process of genetically modifying an organism. How do they go in and find a natural trait within and plant? And then what do they do to make it stay on? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how is that even a thing? Like what? That's a very complicated conversation for a plant. It's fine if you don't know either. But and I am not that person. And I, I will. I have. I have been. A, you know, a student of the CRISPR technology for a long time. Um, we work with. We have a lot of potato producers here in in the state of Michigan. In fact, uh, I mean, we produce like something like 90% of the chipping potatoes that go into your bags, like Frito-Lays and your potato chips, right? Um, so we have very specific problems. We have very specific cultivars that we grow and we need them to be very, you know, specifically on spec, right? So they have all these parameters they have to achieve, which has caused them to be very, very weak in certain diseases, certain stress responses, things like that. And, and they've utilized that CRISPR technology to understand the plant physical physical interactions, what's taking place in the plant, um, and it's and it's pretty powerful to explain how it all works. I, it is it, it's mind blowing to me. First of all, I don't like math that well. Um, I don't love math at all. In fact, I thought I was going to be a pharmacist when I grew up, but it turns out you need to be really good at math to do that shit. And uh, yeah, so that's a hard no. <laughs> yes, um, it is so in the sales I go. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you know, that was, that's just uh, out of respect to the amount of work and, and development that's been done in that realm. You know, what they're trying to do is produce crops that um, have less foreign introduced traits and have more native physical responsibility, right? So that goes hand in hand, utilizing this technology to discover what, what, RNA and DNA traits actually control those things and then learn how the plants respond when you turn it off or you turn it on. And, you know, that's, that's part of it. So it's, it's really a fascinating topic and it's kind of a cool time to be alive because we know more every day. We can see smaller and smaller every single day and it helps us to be better and better producing better food and um, not always better solutions for the environment, but I feel like w we can use those same tools for good if, if, you know, if we let the light shine long enough and, and bright enough, in my opinion. Zach is writing an over a novel over here. I don't know what. Well, I keep making notes. That's kind of my thing. I, you always, not what I say, always like I'm a professional interviewer, but I try to have something for when it gets awkwardly silent to go to. <laughs> And I, usually, like for me, naturally, that's a dick joke. But I was gonna say, you've really, Christy, you've really kept these guys engaged because there isn't one picture of a dick on Zach's on his notes. Randy, do you have any dicks on I, your I don't page? have any dicks. No, this is a dickless interview. Consider <laughs> our first dickless interview. <laughs> Hold on, no, I'll draw one. That. Is that a compliment? I don't know. I just, I don't know. Very, <laughs> there it is. Okay. Now I got one. Okay. But you touched on, I don't even, I don't remember how you touched on it here, but I won't work that into the dick joke, but the, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote down soil health. I was writing that as Becky so rudely stole my notes and made me act immature. 
Um, when when it comes to like She's an enabler, <laughs> she is an enabler. When it comes to hemp on the fields now on the soil, what what's the soil res- the soil's response to growing hemp, and like w- how is hemp for the environment, and what does it do for or against the soil? You know, like do you know what so, I didn't know how yeah, to? Yeah, I know that. I know where you're going with this, Zach. And so I I mean it's important to like just get the concept of the symbiotic relationship that our plants that we cultivate have with the soil biome. So there's all kinds of critters that live in the soil, all different shapes and sizes. They all have their own individual functions. And what what is important for us to realize, and I'll get to the hemp piece of this in just a second, is the plants have a relationship. They signal to the soil microbes to send nutrients their way in these little cluster packs, right? And or individual nutrients along with water. And it, and it enters into the root zones or into the root system and it goes through the plant and the plant can utilize it. And then once the plant's done with that, it kicks it back out and it becomes a root exudate. And it's in the form of different sugars and it's in all these different forms, but it becomes a food source for something else in the soil. So then it, it signals again, I need this. And then the soil microbes respond by bringing it what it needs. And so this, the system kind of you know works like this. It's no different with a hemp plant except the fact that we have a very prolific root structure. It holds up a tremendous amount of weight. Which is generally a good thing for the soil. Absolutely. So root, root exploration and root complexity helps to explore more soil. The more soil we can touch with roots, the more channels we make for water to infiltrate, for soil microbes to create glomulin and, and regenerate the soil's ability to stick together correctly. Um, and it helps to open pathways for compacted soils um, to help to breathe and to and to penetrate down into into different horizons within the soil. So I said penetrate. I know. I, 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 I knew you're going you. there. I, that one to you. <laughs> I knew you're going there, Andy. As soon as I said it, grow like, oh. up, Randy. The, the trigger words. I had no idea there was like 140 trigger words for this. Oh, there's show way more than that. <laughs> Welcome to say. Off the Husk. More like 10,000. <laughs> Keeping notes too. <laughs> Are there any dicks on that? <laughs> oh gosh. So so the soil health component of the hemp plant in just its root proliferation alone explores so much. And and so your exposure to soil health and and already tells you that that's a good thing. You've already recognized that that's a good thing. So the other side of that is the root exudates. So this plant, as I mentioned, as far as human health quality goes, has this very rich, very complete protein and fat acid chain, which is really unique. There's very, very, very few things that grow on the face of this planet that is that complete. And so it, the sim, a, a similar function takes place in the exudate process. It feeds different microbes all the time, simultaneously. Uh, th- it's producing exudates that are high quality and that are doing a really good job. So I think there's some really cool potential there for somebody who's looking to use this as a transition crop. If you're going to be transitioning to regenerative practices, um, because this will allow you to have some soil, you know, structure, um, impact there as well as being able to produce a crop of, of value. 
And um, I like the way it smells. Not everybody does, but I really love driving by a hemp field or walking in a hemp field. Does it smell so, like skunks? No, no. It, has a, it has a way sweeter smell. Um, it, it, skunkiness comes out when the product is consumed or combusted, smoked, uh, particularly. I don't combusted. usually get a lot of, yeah. Some people combust a, hemp cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> you got me again. <laughs> oh, she ran away. She ran away. She's gone. Oh, she I, came my, I accidentally threw my pencil. Oh. <laughs> you accidentally throw your pencil. We thought you were going for another beer. I threw it on purpose, okay? <laughs> yeah, I tossed it. When I when I cracked open my beer a second ago, I set it down and it hit the tip of my pencil and it just went flying through the air. Just the and- tip? Oh, damn it. I knew it. Randy didn't even look at me. He was ready that time. I looked at him because I knew it was coming. You're welcome. <laughs> my wife is... Uh, uh, oh yeah, I we don't got know what you? he is. Sick of your got, no. She's it was a night, not naive. What is the word? Uh, it might be naive. Sheltered. sheltered I don't know. I, so we're at innocent. A, we're I think innocent. it's innocent. There we go. Yeah. That's the word. We're at a we're at a gathering. This well, it was not this. It was summer before. COVID, yeah, last summer. So. Some two a year ago, just over a year ago, and uh, we have another friend who partakes in uh, combusting in hemp, hemp cigarettes, cigarettes. <laughs> and. We, you know, we're all at the circle and, and Randy's wife, Tina is just like, oh gosh, I just smell skunk. Does anybody else smell that? And we're all just kind of like giggling under our breath, you know, just ignoring her. And then because she wasn't saying it as a joke. No, she, she was dead serious. Like, like, she smelled and, it. And, and the person who smokes the hemp cigarette. Oh, bless her is right next to yeah. her. And then and then Tina goes on to say it again. And then the third and time again. and then the third time I look at her and I'm just like, Tina, it's pot. Lacey smokes pot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and Tina no. Like, no. <laughs> it just smells. It's uh, like, oh, what what a I just really thought it smelled like a skunk. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lacey even at one point is like, like, oh, Tina, you're so funny. And Tina's <laughs> like, it's every time you walk up here. <laughs> It smells like a combustible hemp cigarette. That's we right. don't any anytime we smell it anywhere we are, we always joke about that. She always starts laughing, like, do you smell that skunk? <laughs> it's oh. funny. It was it got kind of awkward when I'm doing tissue samples in the summer though. The I love the smell of it. I'm like nose blind to it too. <clears throat> but I also smell like hops after I scout hops fields, right? You smell like yep. soybeans after you've been harvesting soybeans and you're covered in soybean dust, right? I mean, you it, smell it just, like hog shit after you go into the hog barn. It just Or you drive by the hog barn four miles away. Yes. You know? Yeah, totally. Oh God. Nasty. But you know, when I'm out in the hemp fields, I'm tissue sampling leaves. We're doing nutrient analysis to see if we need to tweak our foliar program at all. And, and, um, it's, it's out in the middle of, you know, giggy weeds nowhere. I have like a hour drive to get to a U.S. Postal Service, right, to ship my my packages. And there's just like all these people crossing the road and they're like walking. And this is like in a very remote rural area. So I slow down and a, a conservation officer pulls up to me and like parks in front of me. So I put the truck in park and I'm like, hi, Mr. Officer. He's like, hey, what are you doing? 
I was like, well, I was going to ask you the same. I haven't seen a soul out here and I've been working out here all summer. And I said, here's like 15 cars and 30 people. He said, yeah, we're pushing the woods for coyotes out here. We got a block permit and for coyotes. And um, so these, I'm just here just validating the kills or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And he's like, your truck smells a little funny. I was like, what? What? That, what? what do you? Does it? I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's brand new. I just I just took delivery on it like three weeks ago, so it has that weird like new truck smell. What do you think? I got no. In the center console. He's like, no. He's like, no, no, no. It smells like uh, I don't know, like skunk. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> uh, I don't know what to tell you. He's like, it smells like weed. I was like, oh, does it? I yeah, I don't know. I said I I work with cannabis producers, but yeah, I don't have any weed with me. He goes, do you have? What do you have with you? The reefer. I'm like, <laughs> well, I go through a process. So my consulting clients, we do like a chain of custody where they authorize me to transport their material. So I have a little document that I carry with me. Anytime I carry material in my pickup, I have a copy of their license, my client's license, and then the chain of custody releasing the material to me. And which is what you're supposed to do. This is how we do it. And uh, so I, I didn't think I smelled. I didn't think my truck smelled, but I just, it, I don't know why it didn't occur to me. I had just cut fresh clippings out of the green field of, of industrial hemp, which is not distinguishable at all. I mean, it's very difficult to distinguish it, but he was just very curious. So I opened up the packages. I had to show him what I was doing. He wanted to learn all about it. He asked me how I got started in this career. He's got a <laughs> nephew that wants to be an agronomist. Like... Half an hour later, the coyote people clear out and I get to go in again. (laughs) Like on a first name basis with this conservation officer that was like, smells something, smells like skunk. No, smells like weed. I'm like, so I naturally had to educate him about hemp cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, I have um, hops harvest this year was I went into the room at one of my clients where they're harvesting the hops. So they, they clip the, the binds out in the field and then they bring them up on a wagon and then hook them into this combine called the wolf and it sucks them into the machine and it pulls apart, you know, basically the way that stripper head works for the hemp, right? Nothing, Randy. Uh, I said stripper. I, was, I had already I was, heard Randy. I was, already took a breath. I had a joke like pre-kids. What? My wife's nickname was the Wolf. <laughs> no, unbelievable. You can't say that. <laughs> unbelievable. Kids, it's not marriage. It's kids. <laughs> it's a different podcast, Randy. It's like. <laughs> oh god so yeah you go into you go into the room where they're they're you know combining the hops and you leave there with VIP chaff in your hair and on your clothes you leave there with you know all everything the lupulin is sticky as hell and the you know which is where the those <laughs> terping compounds are randy you need to go <laughs> I just keep the teeing lupulin? them up. I just keep teeing them up. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just how it is, you know? 
And, and I will say, you know, we use industrial hemp in our household in different ways. You know, I mean, we use tinctures. I give my pets CBD treats where my daughter has a dog breeding business, Apple Ranch Aussies. She raises Australian shepherds and Aussie doodles. Oh, and, great. you know, now we're going to have to buy another dog. Boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, they are just ugh, the cutest, smartest what little. What is an Australian shepherds or yeah. And what did you say? A poodle mix? Yeah. Yeah. So then they don't shed. Is that the ticket there or? Um, so you can get F1Bs that are no non-shedding. Our puppies do shed because we're first generation. Um, we have an AKC Aussie female and then we have an AKC um, standard poodle. Um, but they don't shed a lot. They're super duper smart. They're cute as a button. They're about the size of an Aussie. You know, they get about 45 pounds or so. Just, oh, adorable just love them to pieces but we get you know our all of our puppies from our kennel go home with a bag of cbd treats you know from one of my clients um bc hemp in michigan they're located in eau claire michigan and um so all of our puppies will go home with with uh pobbles our german shepherd <laughs> which, which german <laughs> shepherds are known, known for hip for injuries in general but our german shepherd had her hip removed as a puppy or uh, the the not her hip, but the femur socket piece, oh, right? Yeah, the ball of her hip. This, okay. Yeah, it was removed. She got run over. And so I do the same when she gets when it gets irritated, although she's doing really good this fall. Normally when it gets cold, she starts, you know, but I haven't noticed her limping. But same thing. We I bought actual um, CBD is huge in horses, the horse market. I don't know. Yeah. So, but so we bought horse treats because um, they're like a higher dose. And then you just give her a smaller dose or whatever for the, because the German shepherds are so big, but it helps her dramatically actually. Yeah. Or I've heard of people who have dogs that are afraid of thunder or lightning for anxiety. They use it for that. Yeah. Super interesting. Mm-hmm. I have Crohn's pretty- disease. So I've been taking CBD since the beginning of time, but Really, there's there's actually some very cool research coming out about um, intestinal tract disorders and, and inflammation on CBG and CBN. So just really neat. Some of the lower cannabinoids, they're, yep. they're produced in smaller quantities within the plant, but they're extracting them individually and then creating higher concentrations. Like, and mixes. From what I've known, just from my own personal research is that it seems like you can buy one product and it doesn't work at all, but the next product will work. And so to me, it seems like it's gotta be super specific. Like all of it is like the mode of action. Yes. What is going to help you and what is not going to help you. Right. So you just said CB, did you say CBG and CBN? Yes. Okay. Go on another, you know, Bill Nye agronomic rant. I need to learn about (laughs) this. What does that mean? So it's hold CBD. on, my alarm's going off saying that we that we need to move the elf. Oh, because <laughs> the elf the elf isn't actually real. We just move it. Okay, I'm not familiar. My kids are too old for that. It kind of makes me sad, honestly. Uh, ours didn't ours just didn't come out from COVID. <laughs> um, oh no! COVID casualty. <laughs> <laughs> it affects you a lot more if you're plastic. Yes. Oh, yes. I guess so. I guess so. The damn pandemic, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, the um so the, the CBG and the CBN are are other cannabinoids that are present in in plants in the in the cannabis plants. So you can get CBG expressed in a plant that 
predominantly produces CBD, but it'll produce a small amount of CBG. Um, or you can, there's some cultivars out there that we grew this year, several clients did that were high CBG that also carried CBN in it in small quantities. And so, you know, CBN is, is known to help with sleeping disorders and, and to help um, with people to, to enter into like a, a relaxed mode to, to help your brain settle down before bed. Um, that's, that's what it's notoriously known for. Um, CBG is kind of like the mother of all cabin, cannabinoids. So everything kind of starts out as that, and then it gets converted into these other things. And so there's some pretty cool, you know, like, like I said, there's some really neat research taking place. I think the medical community is really, really opening up and stepping up as far as asking questions and not just letting big pharma you know, do with big pharma business like they do. And, you know, because the, the plant-based medicinal purposes of a lot of different plants, I mean, not just cannabis, but a lot of different plants is kind of, you know, in my opinion, kind of grossly undervalued because we live in the pill society, you know, that's what we've been taught to do. And, and that's, you know, my parents, my dad is, is living with cancer and um, he's, you know, they're using a treatment that helps to suppress the cancer cells from elongating and reproducing and it's working right now. Um, you know, but like it's caused him to rethink everything that he's putting into his body, everything. Right. And, you know, as a consequence of his cancer, you know, he's living without a spleen and with only a a portion of his pancreas left. And so, you know, he, he's, he doesn't have a choice, right? He isn't just like recreationally dabbling to, you know, to see what works. He's, he is intentionally learning about his body and intentionally doing things different, you know, because it's, it's important. In fact, his birthday's this weekend and, and we we're, we've been blessed to have another birthday with my dad, you know? And so right now it's working, but, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about this because there's different ways to, to achieve wellness. Yeah. And that's, that's different. Right. And, and I think this goes back to one of the, the problems, like the concepts that people have or misconceptions about industrial hemp and marijuana and the cannabis industry as a whole, because we've, we grew up in the war on drugs world thinking that this is bad when in reality, there's a very strong narrative out there that says is saying that the truth of this plant-based material has been suppressed by big pharma and, and, and diminished. And that part of the war on drugs was driven by that. And, you know, I don't know if that is or isn't, you know, I was born in 1980. That's all I knew right there. We all went through the dare program and um, you know, I passed with flying colors, I guess you could say. And, you know um, instead we don't, we don't use the drugs because alcohol isn't a drug. Right. You know, I mean, or, and, or sugar. and sugar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. you know, it's not, not to go down a rabbit hole with you guys right here on this whole thing, but I think there's some really neat things and it's worthy of, of educating yourself. And there's so critical, much more. Be, be a critical thinker, right? Just, yes. Yes. Think critically. People have everything. been afraid to think. People have been afraid to think for so long afraid to think for so long, but the doors are opening up. People are becoming, you know, uh, their eyes are opening to different ways to achieve soil health and to do better for their farm and to look past just this year's chemical order or this year's fertilizer order and, and into the realm of how can I do better? How can I, you know, realizing that, 
your soil quality is part of your ROI, ROI. It has to be part of the ROI. If it's not part of your risk equation, then it's not, you know, it's, the farm isn't going to last real long. But that's just, uh, you know, and that's on being a, a science nerd and a patriot. Well, you Cheers. make being a nerd Cheers. cool, Christy. I, I am... I am. I think you're super cool. I told you you'd like Christy. Yeah, I do. I told her that. <laughs> I have to give a huge. I have to give a shout out right now. First of all, sorry, we don't allow shout outs. Yeah. Are you sure? I think you. Can, okay, fine. You for you, go ahead. One. Okay. All right. I have to give a huge shout out to my uncle Ray. He's a he's a longtime fan and listener, and he's a huge fan of the MFR. And Randy and the whole gang. He even likes the Welkers. <laughs> Those guys. <laughs> yeah, my, uncle, my uncle Ray Luke. He's he's a he's a great guy. He's a he was a heavy equipment operator almost his whole life, and um, and he's retired now. But I just want to say, hey, Uncle Ray, and I made it. <laughs> Let's give a cheers to Uncle Ray. Oh, yes. to Uncle Ray. Cheers, Uncle Ray. Thanks for listening. Heavy equipment operator, my kind of guy. That's right. We could That's have gone cool. into uh, hops. Well, I don't know shit about hops. I, well, we didn't know shit I feel about like I know either. a little bit about hops. Oh. I zero. Other than I know it comes on a vine and they harvest it on the vine, so it vine. goes into vine. what? It's a vine with a B. No shit. I didn't oh, even know I, that. I wouldn't shoot you. Vine. You're my favorite turd. <laughs> <laughs> So, because you harvest it like a 10-foot strip at a time, right? Yeah. And then it hangs in that. They're tall. Yeah, so it grows from a rhizome. It's not a vine, though? Like a crown, like a crown of roots. It grows up. They place these core. They're made out of core um, rope, basically, and they attach it to a top wire, and then they train the vines up the core. Not vine. With a B. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they train it, they train it to go up and then it, it continues to grow, grow nodes all the way up through the top of the canopy. So is it like a string bean? Um, in that context, yes. <laughs> that it we, could grow on a vine. I've yeah. done, I've done the, uh, the, no, uh, you're talking about, he's talking about green bean plants. Yes. Like, green okay. Bean so plants. you know how green beans, you provide the, um, the trellis, like the string. Yeah. The trellis, yeah, so, string. Yeah, the yep. trellis. So yep. It, is and that... then you, you attach it to teach it to like grow up the trellis. Yes. So with the with the hops binds, they vary there. You don't have to do a lot of work to teach them. Once you get it like two turns, it will basically just go. But those are, you know, up there, 12 to 15. They can like get real field? high. Yeah, that's in the Zach yeah. showing her Zach like a hop, a hop trellis, which is why, like she mentioned earlier, it's like thirty thousand dollars an acre. Yeah, because you got to put in the poles and the trellises, so, and then you're like she said, three to four years before you have a full crop. Right? Do you call it a grape vine or a yes, vine. No, uh, uh, grapes are grown on a vine with a V as in Victor. Hops are vines. So hops are vines. What, v as in boy. What what differs the two? Well, uh, a hops plant, it doesn't get woody, um, whereas, a, <laughs> a, whereas a, a grapevine is going to actually get a, a tree. 
basically. It's going to establish a, a tree trunk, more or less. Oh, so whereas okay. the, the hops, you cut it every single year. You cut it annually down at the ground, and you harvest all of that plant material that's above the ground. And it, so grows, it grows back every year? Yeah. After you can you can get winter you can get winter damage and you can have problems you know with it not overwintering correctly um, it can get diseases in the roots you know that kind what, of thing just like any other plants but yeah what do you it's do for the first three years that you that you don't get a crop I would assume so you still train it you still fertilize it you still maintain it you have to um, cut it. Yep. You still, you, well, a second year, usually you don't normally have to cut it the first year. Sometimes they'll let them just grow on the ground the first year, ah. um, depending on what time of year you actually get it planted into the ground. It probably just um, doesn't start to grow fruit. I would assume until. Right. Right. Hops of fruit. So, so the fruit, the fruit is the cone, right? So we, we're growing female plants and we grow the cone and the cone is where the lupulin, which is the material, the, the compound that makes the, the beer taste. This hoppy. chick is fucking cool. Okay, I have a question. So if you did not, okay, so, okay. Are you a millennial? Do you still think She's, you know a lot about hops? Do you miss I was born it? in 80. Okay. I'm not technically a millennial. Yeah, I think I'm like sure. right on the... But yeah. so for my my kids right so you not, did not, not you're saying you didn't go to school that. for agronomy but so you've learned you must read a shit ton where yeah. do you learn all of this or do you not read a shit ton and you just learn it hands-on uh, both i i mean I, I knew because i was entering the agronomy world all of my peers were 10 years younger than me right i'm i just turned 40 i turned i'm 40 and fabulous <laughs> i turned yes. 40 this year right so all of my peers like when I was going through, you know, I was sitting for exams when I was going through, you know, professional accreditation stuff, all of my peers were 10 and 15 years younger than me. And I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but you know, it's, it's all good. I, I really, you know, I do, I spent a lot of time reading and educating myself. It's important for me to understand the industry in order for me to help farmers achieve things that they, that are outside of what they perceive as their reach, right? So in order to help my hops clients or help my hemp farmers, I need to understand the industry and, and trying to give them some type of marketing advantage um, through crop quality and through soil health and longevity of their farm. So, you know, that's, that's where I geek out. I spent the, how I educated myself and how I got started. I started taking online classes, any webinar I could take every, you know, every hour long meeting about herbicides or insecticides or anything I could do. I was consuming that like constantly when I first got started because yeah. I knew that learning curve was huge. And also I don't like to lose. I don't, and, and I, I just enjoy four year degree or just a two year in sales or yeah, like, I, I didn't finish college. Oh my God. You were amazing. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I started having babies and being a, a mama was, was my priority in that moment. But you know, my, my natural ability to connect with people and the, my desire for understanding why people do what they do has just always given me that drive to just keep learning and keep pushing myself into new realms. You know, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I still love staying connected to my corn and soybean clients. And I work with several dairies in different parts of, of Michigan. 
um, helping them with their production systems and on their cropping side. And I love that. And I'll never get rid of that because I feel like that always helps me to stay grounded. It always, I, I never want to get rusty or dusty or irrelevant in this industry. I love what I do and being able to mentor young people um, the way that I do now, not just young people, but young to the industry is just like such a joy for me. I get to share my passion about plants and connecting with people to people that are forming their professional habits. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really blessed. I'm, I'm more blessed than I deserve. I really am. I think you just are talented and intelligent. So back on hops, <laughs> how long? <laughs> I'm still amazed at this hops thing. <laughs> Little minds. So how long? How long do they grow? So they plant it takes three years to get going. Then how long does it last? So if you if you take care of your hop yard, you could and the market um, stays hot for your so cultivar. That was the other thing I was going to ask. Then when your market goes cold, that you have shitty hops so, and you need to so, redo it. Uh, you know, it, it, hop yards have gotten really, um, they work really closely on the marketing side. I work with some really large hops yards in, in the Midwest here, and they do a really good job of, of staying connected to their breweries and staying connected to the, to the brewers, right? The people that are are making the recipes. And, and so having and building those relationships is part of their marketing, you know, that they have to do for their commodity that they're producing. And so you could potentially, you know, I mean, still Cascade and Centennial hops are still king, you know, and even though you can't taste it in a Bush latte or a Coors Light, there's still hops in there, my friend. So how, 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 how long have they been growing? Well, I mean, you could, you could get a, 10 year run out of it or longer, yeah. Okay, you know, and, and even if you, even if you decide, okay, I'm, I'm growing cascade hops now and I don't, I know I don't need them anymore because everybody's producing cascade. I want to go to something a little more obscure and take a risk and go with like a, a super Zazer or a, you know, a Zaz I'll just say is, is a very popular cultivar um, in certain brewing styles in Europe. That's foundational. So you're going to have somewhere to sell your material to. It just might not be the local brewery up the road, right? You might have to think a little bigger and market on a, on a larger scale or a, a, a bigger geography, right? To sell more niche style hops. But really, you know, that makes a lot more sense. A lot of these hops cultivars, you know, one of my clients that grows like grows 15 different cultivars and we have to manage each of those cultivars slightly different. You know, that was my next question is how many, how many is there? How many cultivars is there? Oh, there's hundreds. Yes. There's hundreds. Yeah. In, in region, they're very like regionally, you know, there's some, there's some regions of the world that will only grow these in this place. Right. There's a cluster in like Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic and Serbia and um, Hungary and that neck of the, the woods there, like in like far, you know, that side of Europe that, that's the only place that some of these cultivars grow. So, so they're very popular, right? So to be able to like cultivate them here in, in Michigan, for example, as one of my clients have, it makes them really attractive. They know that they'll be able to sell that particular cultivar because very few people have tried it, but they did the legwork. They went out and found it. They brought it back and took the risk on it and it's paying off, you know, and they've actually tore out Cascade and they've tore out Centennial and, 
replaced it with things like mosaics and citra. And there's a whole group of them that are, you know, very regionally specific things like copper and, um, they, that's the, the cult of our names that are just really popular. And I love going to a brewery here in Michigan and, and talking with whether it's the person pouring in the tap room that might have some knowledge on hops or sometimes the brewer will come out and I'll ask, you know, what, why did you choose this? Or I, I love what you did with the Citra hops here. And they just kind of look at me like, who is this girl? <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> and it's fun because then we have this moment. He pours a beer. We sit down and have a conversation. I met some really cool female brewers when I was traveling down south last year and in, in Indiana. And I realized they're like there's like this whole like females in hops and brewing culture that I didn't even know existed. So I was like, yeah, it's the Pink Boot Society or something like that. It's it's absolutely like the hop and females. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's female brewers and they wear pink boots and they teach people about what they do because it's like a cool job, you know, and and although I'm not brewing beer, but, uh, you know, I'm going to apply to be an honorary pink boot society for the Female Hops Association. But we'll I think see. you should. <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of fun. Yes. Randy, have I exhausted your hops questions? I no. So you harvest it in this 10 foot vine. Then what do they do with it? Put How do they harvest giant it? Toaster. They just, they, they cut it. it right? Somebody, somebody grabs at the top and they cut it off the bottom. They throw it on a truck. It's a little more mechanized than that. Um, you know, like on, a, on, on like a larger scale, it's a little more mechanized than that, but essentially, yes, they're clipping it at the bottom and at the top. And then that vine falls into a wagon and then the wagon is taken up to the, the harvest, the Osteen house. And in the, in the house, they have these combines. The Does each, Cause you call wool. them a yard. So it's not a hops farm. It's a hops yard. Hop yard. So you take it to the hop yard. Does each hop yard have their own harvest? I'm not going to say every hop yard does the, the smaller scale, you know, like the tenth of an acre folks, they don't typically have that infrastructure. Okay. Um, they'll partner with larger, you know, companies. We have a couple of um, my local hops in Northwestern Michigan um, harvests and processes for a lot of small producers in the area. I think, I think they're harvesting somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 plus acres. And then there's another group down in Southwest Michigan um, called Hophead and uh, Hophead Hop, and they do a nice job too, same kind of deal. They work with, you know, they have smaller farms that will bring their hops to Hophead to do the processing, the, the combining, which is removing the actual fruit, the, the cones. And that happens at the- At the Osteen House. The Osteen House. Osteen House, okay. So from the, from the combine, it rides an elevator and dumps into a dryer. So it's a, a multi-stage dryer, um, similar to what we do in hemp. It's low and slow um, because they, what they're trying to do is remove moisture without chemically changing or causing a chemical reaction in the lupulin, which is the, which is the compound, the active compound we want. And so it's, from it's that- It's kind of like a big belted toaster, right? Um, that's how we do it in hemp and hops. It's actually floors. And so it, at, at one of the farms, it basically, the hops convey over onto a huge screen and there's a huge furnace underneath it, massive airflow all around it. And these floors go up and down. 
inside of this giant column, the Osting house, until it's dried to perfection. Then it goes out into another area where it's dried. And basically it's these floors, they're all on, on wheels and they go out and spread all the dry, warm material out until it reaches a temperature that's safe to bale it. And then the material will get compressed into bales, vacuum packed, um, or packed in foil pouches on smaller scale, and then um, go into cold storage until it's delivered to a brewery, for example. And that's how a brewery buys it. So in, in a yep. bale or a, a brick or a bag or... That's right. Um, one of the one of the newer techniques um, in accessing um, hops is lupulin extraction. So they'll actually take it one step further from the bale, and they will um, extract that either through distillation of some kind or a chemical extraction process, and create oil. So it's like the concentrated oil extracted from that green matter, that biomass. So, you know, lupulin extracts, it's a lot cheaper to ship vials than it is to ship bales if you're sending it to Brazil or Argentina or Chile or something like that. So, um, you know, that's a one, one next level step on some of these, you know, larger scale hop yards that have figured that part out. So different ways to market their material. Super cool. It is yeah, cool. I'm it's, it's really fun. Okay. It's really fun. But when you go into those, into the especially during harvest, I mean, it is it is a well-oiled machine. But you come out of there like smelling like hops. I mean, hops. <laughs> when when <laughs> Not is harvest? Hoppy beer. Hops. <laughs> when I is like harvest? Yeah, harvest. Um, most of the cultivars in our geography, right here along like the 45th parallel, is right in the neighborhood of like Labor Day starts. Okay. And it's usually done by the end of September. We have some earlier maturing um, cultivars um, that'll start maybe like two weeks prior to that. Um, like my guys down in Indiana, you know, I work with uh, crazy horse hops down in Indiana. They do, they run a beautiful operation down there and those guys are, you know, they'll start sometime in the middle of September and it usually takes them about 25 days and they go around the clock and they don't stop. They just hammer through and it's it, it. There's a lot of hands on deck. There's a lot of moving parts, but man, it is a cool, a cool, cool process. You mentioned the 45th parallel. Is that where central Michigan is at? Um, that's where northern Michigan is. We have a, a pretty pretty large um, hops growing cluster in northern Michigan. So right here at my where my cottage is, we're, you know, we're just north of the 45th. So That's, that's where we are here. Just yeah. North of the 45th. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, kind of fun. You know, we, we, have, uh, we have some great growing regions that do really well at this at this uh, geography too. Um, we can grow some of the French varietals, but we also grow the, um, the cold hardy, the American hybrids. Um, actually several hybrids coming from Minnesota. Awesome. Marquette grapes and Frontenac Gris and Petite Pearl and some of the other fun stuff that makes all kinds of crazy fun wine. I work with all the, the party producers. Do you realize that? You see what I did there? <laughs> it seems that way, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. We have we have a a few really small grape, I don't know, vineyards, vineyards around here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's a wine, uh, a winery. Yeah, yeah winery. It's called the winery. It's yeah. called the winery. It's in the title. 
Yeah, there's a winery and they own their own vineyard and then there's a few vineyards here, but nothing like I when I imagine the scale of a vineyard, we don't have anything large. But there's no, a I few mean, of them out here. Sure. And, mm. and, you know, there again, vineyards have a tremendous amount of upfront cost, you know, to put the trellising up for that. And it's, it's a it's a costly endeavor. You know, and if you're going to grow grapes, you better have somewhere to sell them. Otherwise, you need to be married to a winemaker. You know, right. I mean, like <laughs> it's it's really, you know, it's one of those those things. University of Minnesota is really, really engaged and involved in the development of the cold hardy cultivars and the cold hardy, um, you know, system, the viticulture system. So, the you know, a lot of what, parallel grapes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And nice. there's another little cluster in New York around the Finger Lakes area yep. um, that grows those same cultivars as well. And they're very, they're, it's very common. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. We're all kind of in a little row here and right. it's all these, these beautiful American cultivars that are native to, to, you know, this land and it's really fun. And, and it surprises, it surprises you, you know, if you're a wine, if you're a wine connoisseur and you're, you know, experiencing wine that you're accustomed to and you think of Cabernet Sauvignon or whatever, and then you drink a, a Marquette and you're like, whoa, uh, this is actually a very respectable, very, very tasty wine, lots of character and just totally different experience. So I love propping up my cold hearty grape growers. They do a hell of a good job and it's always fun to, it's always fun to make new things, right? Do you jump, join in on the grape stomp? <laughs> Um, that's more of a, that's like a, an Italian thing. Um, uh, they do it really, just up the road really here every year. Yeah, you, we, have you done that, Becky? Mm-mm. You've never gone? I don't know. I, I've, I've never done anything like that. That's, I know me, Tina it, and some of her friends have. I'm not a wine drinker. Yeah. <gasps> oh. No. Oh. Oh, that's Juju Boone's learned, farm. You know, I'm learning about you, Becky. I love this. This Boone's is this farm. is fun. No, I I have I have drank wine, but usually it ends with the world's worst hangover. So <laughs> I try and avoid it, <laughs> like the plague. Well, Good. you better you better hit me up on the January thing. I'm gonna hold you to it because you know if it means you know trailer in the sleds over and you know having a big old bash here at the Apple Blossom Cottage. Let's do it. Now we got to go snowmobiling in Michigan. <laughs> Great. Do you, do you have snow there now? Yeah, we do. Actually, we got a beautiful snow a week ago. I told Zach, we, we actually took the sled out for a little rip and went and got beers at um, the bar up the trail, had a igloo sitting out. So we went and got a couple beers and we're like, wow, it's winter. Yeah. <laughs> so you went for a rip on the sleds, grabbed a beer and sat in an igloo. Yeah, we did. It was the full <laughs> Yeah, experience. that doesn't sound fun. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. Nobody should come <laughs> here. It's horrible. <laughs> oh god, we can't get enough of it. Like I said, we got good good friends up here too. It's there's always something fun to, to uh, fun to do, and you wake up and you see the ducks in the morning on the river. And this is this place in the summer is just it's just wild. Indian River is is where it's at. Love 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 this area. We can get to the big water from here. We can go. We can take our boat from our dock clear on up through the lakes, the chain of lakes and rivers and go right out to Mackinac Island. Right wow. where you stayed, Randy. That was, a, that was fun. We did that. Uh, it was our third anniversary. So 12 years ago. Yeah. We, and, but, Mackinac Island is always a great, is always a great time. It's such a neat experience. I, we enjoyed taking the kids there and that was, that was really neat. Michigan's got a lot to offer. I'm telling you. What do they do in the winter in Mackinac? 
I never really thought uh, of that. Do they get much snow? They do. They get a lot of snow. The straits freeze over. Um, so you can't take the ferry over. Um, they typically do the, they mark out a trail across the straits. So you can take the sleds across five. It's like five miles across. Okay. Um, is that all it is? Is five miles? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll see goes yep. further than that. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, or you can trailer your sleds, you know, and whatever. What, you they, can what are they doing? The, how are they moving snow on the Island? They don't do hardly. I mean, the Island for the most part shuts down. Um, the horses go to Kentucky. Okay. The horses live on a ranch in Kentucky. Oh, they um, do. During, yeah. Yeah. Ah, so okay. they go during the winter so that they stay in shape and stay in condition. Cause there's cause, like a hundred, a hundred full-time uh, residents on the Island. Isn't there something like that? Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some people that live there all year round. Um, but you know, not many. Okay. Not many. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty small, but they do like, you know, shipments of things. And my father-in-law did a bunch of work many, many years ago, um, at the grand hotel, they were pouring concrete steps and doing all kinds of, um, construction work on the Island and they would ride the snowmobiles across. They stayed in Mackinac okay. city and they'd ride across and work during the day. And they bring <laughs> supplies over on with the sleds and the big snow cats. Okay. We went, mm-hmm. uh, I know one day we went fishing. It was just Tina and I went and, uh, so then we'd gone fishing one day and then the seas got too rough and our, our, uh, our guide couldn't get us back to the Island. So we oh. ended up going back to the mainland and then he just bought us ferry tickets and we were able to ride the ferry back. But, okay. but, uh, but that was pretty fun. Yeah. It gets a little sketchy through there. That's real deep water through there. And you got two lakes converging right there. So you have, there's a a lot of, a lot of disturbance happens in the water and the wind around there. We had a pretty sketchy ride. We took the kids across uh, two years, three years ago. We stayed overnight at a hotel on the Island and then we brought the boat back the next day and our ride home. I mean, we had kids that were green. It was rough. rough. uh, The guy who took us had another, had a buddy his with, and uh, he was puking on the boat. And I, mm. that was the funnest part for me was out there. And Tina was green. And we were in six, seven-foot seas in this little boat. We caught a lot of fish. It was fun. But we got back, and he docked on the mainland. And I remember Tina got off, and and she, like, sidestepped. If there wouldn't have been a pillar there on the dock, she would have walked right into the water. <laughs> like, it was that bad where she she took a step and her next step went straight sideways oh, and she like caught the pillar. Lordy. It was to, for me that was the, the the best part was was the boat actually coming airborne out of the water <laughs> over these waves. <laughs> oh Lord. That that the straits have claimed a lot of lives. The, people, people that are people that are like local to this area, they don't mess with the with the water. It's the, it's too the, unpredictable and it's and it's bigger than you think. Yeah, you I know? know the captain was getting pretty nervous too. Uh, you could tell, which made Tina even more nervous. And I was I was just having the time of my life. Like I was standing <laughs> up, I was having fun. <laughs> 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 yeah.